Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us for episode 113. Uh, we are recording this on Sunday, February 14th, 2021, at 3 o'clock Pacific time. I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, as always, Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. I think this might be the first podcast we have ever recorded where all three of us are, like, frozen into our homes. Not as bad as Zach. Uh, Zach, it, it's, like, epically cold there. But we had a pretty good ice storm here in the Northwest. Yeah, it, it's pretty cold here. It's colder here than it is in Alaska right now. And uh, that means that there's nothing to do except for watch bad movies. So it's like a perfect time to do this podcast. Oh, oh. I didn't say record bad podcasts. I said watch <laughs> bad movies. There's a difference. Although sometimes the fine line. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. Todd, I heard you went on a five-mile run yesterday in the 30-degree snow. Yeah, well, it wasn't, I only went about maybe three and a half miles, but yeah. Oh. It was, that was interesting because, like, immediately my ankle just got, like, frozen. So, I mean, I couldn't really feel my feet for most of it because I was chomping in the snow. But then I just, like, hopped in the street and started running because no one was driving anyway, so. I've never done that before, but that was fun. The hardest part was the snow was getting in my eyes. Uh, otherwise, I probably oh, would have been right. Yeah, I walked to the store today, and uh, it was it was almost too icy to go for a walk. I can't imagine going for a jog. Well, I mean, it it was not as bad as like when it was like thirty degrees and no snow, because then everything was just like it was like a shiver, like just, and I was like hard to breathe. But like, yeah, I don't know, the snow kind of warms it up or something. I don't know, it's kind of weird. Jesus, that was five clicks, Jackson. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I also have to mention it, it was a, it was a big story on our last podcast. Zach, what happened in the Super Bowl, man? Uh, you know, uh, I mean, Todd can tell you, I, I texted him like five different scores that I thought it was going to be. It started that, you know, Chiefs blowout and then, oh, Chiefs by 10 points then Chiefs by three. But by the day of the Super Bowl, I said, screw it. The Buccaneers are winning this. Too much bad juju. We needed uh, Jennifer Lawrence and Robert De Niro there to, to really help us. But, uh, yeah, it, it was pretty terrible. It, it was it was pretty traumatic. And, and um, you know, set seven, eight days afterwards of, you know, single-degree weather, it's it's been a bummer here. And a basketball team out of the top 25, not a good time to be a Kansas Cityan. Yeah, yeah, that, that, was, that was rough. I was texting Todd, and I went from, like, end of first half, I was rooting for the Chiefs. Todd was rooting for the Buccaneers and all the all the Cornhuskers on the Buccaneers. But I went from just being pissed off at the end of the first half at some of the calls to once I saw how the second half started, I'm like, okay, now it's just time to be in awe of what exactly Tom Brady's doing here. The worst and, part about it, as I texted both of you, is that they didn't wear their orange creamsicle jerseys. That's the That, that was the worst part of the whole game for me. <laughs> But can we all just agree that 
like, after watching that game, Patrick Mahomes was way more impressive than Tom Brady. I mean, all Tom Brady had to do in the second half was hand the ball off. Patrick Mahomes was running for his life with, he ran you know, 500 yards of offensive linemen who couldn't <laughs> protect for jack shit. I mean, that was one of the, I think, one of the greatest perfor- quarterback performances of all time. His receivers dropped every pass, but they were all there. It was unbelievable. Five hundred scrambling yards. Five hundred scrambling yards. Would have been a that, Madden record. That that's just insane. Todd, you're awfully quiet. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> I I wasn't rooting for the Chiefs. I had, I, I won all three of my bets. I had, I teased seven points with the Bucks and the under, so that hit easily. And then I had the one receiver on the Chiefs. I forget what his name is now, even, but I had him under ten and a half Byron yards. Pringle. Yeah, Pringle. He caught the first pass for like. He made yards. the best play of the whole game, which was called back on the penalty. But like that was the one play that a Chief made that was like impressive. That tackle. Yeah. Oh yeah. On and, the punt. Uh, I had Gronk to score a touchdown, and so that that obviously hit right away. And I've never seen yeah, Brady run that play to Gronk before. Like Gronk has never caught a touchdown that was like a screen pass. It's like an Aaron Hernandez touchdown. That was not a Gronk play. But it was kind of awesome. <laughs> we don't talk about Aaron Hernandez anymore. Uh, okay, well. Uh, <laughs> but my boys, Sue club. and Vita Vea, completely wrecked the game. Like, they were the MVPs yeah. of that game. I, I, yeah. I, if, if they could, I, I agree with a lot of people that said, if they could give the MVP to a coach, Todd Bowles wins MVP. Just the, the scheme he, he drew up for, for fighting them off there. So, awesome. so I have a real question for you guys. Do you think this Tampa team could have beat Seattle in their heyday? Like, I, I come out of this game thinking that Tampa team was damn good. I mean, that was like maybe the best team in the last five years. Do they stack up to the team of the decade in the maybe hypothetical matchup? Yeah, but obvi- but you know, the, the, these last eight weeks they were kicking everybody's ass. I, I think the Legion of Boom dominates Brady's offense more than that Bucks defense dominates Russell's offense. I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah, Marshawn would uh, still be able to run on that team, but yeah. Marshawn, I mean, you still you had you had Golden Tate, you had Percy Harvin in that Super Bowl um on the outsides and a competent offensive line. That's really what it came down to. Is the Chiefs were so beat up on that offensive line that that they had they had nothing. And the real story of the game was the weekend, you know, going from an obscure singer nightclub in 2012, hanging out with Julia Fox to headlining a Super Bowl halftime show. I mean, I feel bad for, you know, Adam Sandler. Like he, you know, he clearly didn't know what he was dealing with um, when he when he tried to beat his ass. But all right. Well, Zach, what are you drinking today? I'm having a Alleyoop Dunkel from Free State Brewery in honor of my pathetic Jayhawks team that barely beat Iowa State. Yikes. I saw there's a chance that, I mean, low chance, but there's a chance Kansas, North Carolina, Duke, and Kentucky all missed the tournament. Oh, we're making the tournament. We'll get in as like yeah. an eight or nine seed. Those Kansas others, I, I don't know so much Carolina about. Carolina is but. like squarely on the bubble, though, too. I mean, like, yeah, they, they, last I saw, they were like one of the last four in. Duke and Kentucky are out right now, though. And Michigan State sucks, too. Yeah. Anyways, Todd, what are you drinking? Gin. Always gin. It's a Linton Hill London Dry Gin. Straight up. Nice, nice. 
So I, I, I walked to the store today, couldn't get to the brewery. So I walked to the store and on a cold day like this, I needed, I needed a stout, something nice and dark. So I've got, this is at a worthy brewing in uh, Bend, Oregon. This is their lights out stout. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure that you, um, that you subscribe, rate, review uh, wherever you want to find podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora. You can also find us on YouTube where you can find clips of our show. You can also find uh, the uh, Daily Notes podcast there, which is a part of the Almost Sideways podcast network. Uh, Todd, you just recorded a Daily Notes yesterday that should be coming out fairly soon. What were you guys talking about? Uh, we were talking all about The Wrestler because we love that movie. And uh, we also uh, exchanged uh, top ten movies that we hadn't seen of each other's, and we reviewed those as well. It, it'll, it'll be a fun listen. Good. Good. Sounds awesome. All right. Well, uh, Todd, I'll go to you first then for what you've been watching, and uh, where are we going in the cager this week? Uh, so mine isn't... It's it's actually not, like, a bad Nicolas Cage movie. It's just, uh, like, a an oversight that I haven't watched, which I don't really have many of them, but I, I decided to go with it this week, and that is the 1984 Francis Ford Coppola-directed The Cotton Club, uh, which uh, takes place at a Harlem jazz club in the <coughs> 1930s, and it's kind of... It's run by gangsters, frequented by gangsters, but all the performers basically are black. The main characters are Richard Gere, who is like an aspiring actor, but he starts working for the mob. And also Gregory Hines plays Sandman, who's one of the main attractions at the club. And sort of the emotional core of the movie. Uh, Nicolas Cage plays like an up-and-coming mob guy, and he's Gere's brother in this. Uh, The first moment he shows up, it's really strange. He looks like he just escaped from Oliver Twist or something like that. It, I, it, he looks lost and his accent is kind of ridiculous and it's weird to watch now but like as he becomes more part of the plot then he actually does become one of the standouts in the cast and he, he, he looks he starts to look like a gangster and also kind of like a vampire but uh, he, he is definitely he, he has a, he has a couple scenes in there where he's uh, he's on the money and Richard Gere is amazing in the movie he, he should have worked with Coppola more like he shoots him like he thinks he's his next De Niro and uh, you, you, the performance kind of justifies that he really is pretty awesome in this Diane Lane's terrible in this movie. Gregory Hines is really, really good. I'd never really seen him before, but uh, I, I I wish he had become more of a, a big thing. James Ramar is sort of the bad guy, and uh, he's playing a role that's like 20 years too old for him at the time, but he still somehow makes it work, and he has a really cool, like, receding hairline. Bob Hoskins is like the boss, because of course he's a boss, and the the cast is crazy. There's It's got Jennifer Grey, Sofia Coppola, Giancarlo Esposito, Tom Waynes, Lawrence, Fish, Lawrence Fishburne, it's just, it's just a really cool movie. I, I assumed it was just like a jazz movie going in, but it really is more like obsessed with the mob and stuff, which is cool. It's almost like a 1930s Edward G. Robinson movie, but uh, it does have a lot of jazz and dancing scenes as well. It's almost strange that how many directors love that brand of music and that era of music and that setting for their films. Uh, and in no way feels like a post-Heaven's Gate 1980s movie. It's, it's just a generally really good movie. It's kind of hard to make fun of it. I'm giving it like a high three stars, which puts it at number 25 on my cager between Racing with the Moon and Face Off. Very nice, very nice. Yeah, I mean... Did, po- I, hear, did I hear Face Off's getting a remake soon? I think I heard something about that. Yeah, I heard that or too. a sequel or something. 
Anyways, Zach, what were you going to say? I was just going to say the legendary thing about that movie is uh, how just how it almost ruined the studio. No one saw it. They completely kind of butchered the distribution of it. And actually, it, it had really bad word of mouth, but kind of like what you're saying, Todd, it's actually pretty... I, I've not seen it, but I know a lot of critics who praised it. I know Ebert gave it four stars. And uh, it just was one of those movies that, kind of like some of um, Coppola's other work in the 80s, um, just sort of got overshadowed by bad publicity and bad production decisions. Yeah, it wasn't The Godfather, so it was sort of, just sort of overlooked. I mean, The Cotton Club, it did end up getting a couple Oscar nominations, but I don't know. I, I'd arguably deserve more. All right. All right. Well, Zach, uh, what was one of the uh, one of the crappy movies you watched while you were snowed in this week? Well, I, I watched two things I want to report on. I'll go kind of quickly. I'll start with the thing that I liked. Um, it wasn't a movie. It's on ESPN Plus right now, and it's part of um, the ESPN's E60 documentary series, and it's called Alive, the Drew Robinson Story. I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but uh, it's about it, it's a documentary of a baseball player named Drew Robinson who, um, for most of his career, spent time on the Texas, in the Texas Rangers organization. Uh, I think currently he's a part of the San Francisco Giants, and in April of last year, he uh, tried to commit suicide. And um, he t the the documentary is this really frank uh, look at the, some of the struggles, the uh, mental anguish that he had gone through. Um, he's like a perfectionist, and the 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 toll of going back and forth between the ma majors and the minors um, really caught up with him. And so um, ultimately, he chose to buy a gun and shoot himself in the head. Um, remarkably, the bullet went in this kind of strange direction and just averted his brain, and so he was able to make. Um, almost a full recovery except they had to take out his uh, right eye um, and so the documentary also kind of profiles his attempt to come back make a comeback in the major leagues which he's still trying to do um, it's a really tough documentary to watch it I think uh, shines really important light on mental illness and mental struggle particularly for, for professional athletes my one complaint is Jeff Passan's uh, narration I think he he oversells it and over dramatizes it a little bit he, he loves to do the whole on April 3rd <laughs> Drew Robinson woke up in the morning, and it's like, okay, well, you you can use that every once in a while, but let's let's kind of move on, okay? But it's actually a really good documentary. I'd encourage everybody to watch it. It's only an hour long, but um, the East sixty has done a lot of good stuff. Um, the thing that was not so good that I watched this week is a movie that was released on Amazon Prime called The Map of Tiny Perfect Things, which is yet uh. another entry into the Groundhog Palm Springs schema oh. of movies where characters um, repeat the same day over and over again, except this time this one was um, basically had the veneer of a YA um, melodrama, two teens that fall in love. And uh, without going too much into it, I was pretty bored by it. It doesn't really do anything that revolutionary. In Instead of them trying to find their way out, they go on fun little adventures together in, in this really annoying John Green-esque uh, YA fashion that is fairly insufferable, and I fell asleep a couple times. So I give it two stars. Maybe if you're a teenager and you like that kind of stuff, fine. But it, it was a good movie for, for it to be snowed in because uh, it was bad and it was uh, very, um, what's the word? It put, puts you to sleep, but um, yeah, not, not really my cup of tea. Now the real question is, what did the wife think of it? I, she liked it quite a bit more more than I did, admittedly. <laughs> but the parts that she saw that I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I've heard of that E60 uh, uh, documentary. I haven't watched it yet. But uh, it's interesting that it's narrated by Jeff Passan. I don't think of, like, 
narrator when I hear Jeff Passan's voice. Yeah, it was it was a little unusual. You never quite get used to it, but fortunately, it, it's not so much that um, it overwhelms the movie. It's just yeah, it's just a little bit there, but you know, we could probably deal without it. It's not it's not totally necessary. When I think it's better than Bob Passan. Lee. <laughs> Put it that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. When I think of Jeff Passan, I think of uh, Brock and Salk, the uh, Seattle uh, uh, sports radio guys. Now they're sports podcast guys. Uh, whenever he's on the show, they have a little jingle that talks about how Jeff Passon's a wet blanket. It's pretty good. Nice. Very good. You guys should look it up. All right. Well, it's my turn now, and um, I don't have a guessing game for you guys because there's no way you're going to get it because this is um, going back 10 years to 2011. This was a nominee for Best Documentary. Uh, it is the first of five that I need to watch this year because I haven't watched any from that year. And so this is If a Tree Falls, a story of the Earth Liberation Front. Um, it is directed by Marshall Curry and Sam Coleman. And it uh, kind of goes inside and looks at the Earth Liberation Front, which is a radical uh, environmental group that uh, was, is like borderline domestic terrorists in their uh, approach to trying to save the environment. Uh, it specifically focuses on a man named Daniel McGowan, who was uh, going on trial for some of the uh, crimes that the group had committed. Uh, it was kind of a fascinating story. I hadn't really heard much about them. Um, I was really curious uh, watching it because it does have some uh, really strong Northwest roots. Uh, the Earth Liberation Front, especially what Daniel McGowan was a part of, uh, got a lot of its start in Eugene and around Eugene, Oregon. Zach. So oh, yeah. uh, there's a lot of Love Eugene the ties here. Um, they were some of the uh, main people at the front of the WTO riots in Seattle uh, back in the late 90s. Or was that late 90s, early 2000s? Anyways, um, the, the famous riots in Seattle around the WTO there. Um, it, it's, it's a really interesting, like I said, it's an interesting topic. Um, it doesn't really, uh, I, I wish it would go into it a little more i i was i was kind of bored at it with it at times i'm giving it three stars because it is a fascinating uh look at this but uh i I wish it was a little more engaging as it uh as it told its story um but it's it is an interesting watch if you're into the environment and and uh things like that and uh these are groups that would go around and vandalize pillage they would like burn down lumber yards and things like that to try and try and save the environment um they were some of the ones that turned the wto into uh, a riot instead of a peaceful protest because that's what that's just they were more of an active group i think it's kind of interesting that we're um that this was my watch for this week and then we're about to talk about judas and the black messiah because i think it's kind of similar in looking at how you approach activism um do you approach it more peacefully or do you approach it more violently and that's one of the things that Judas and the Black Messiah looks at in the civil rights movement, and um, if a tree falls, looks at in the um, in the environmental movement. So, uh, three star uh, documentary. It's easily available on uh, Prime Video, so you can find it there if uh, if that sounds interesting. Um, pretty quick watch, under under ninety minutes. Um, 
which I'm sure uh, appeals to Zach. Zach, I think you would really appreciate this movie, actually. Well, listen, it sounds like I kind of lived it. I mean, growing up in Eugene in the 90s, every freaking week there were, you know, people that lived in the trees and protested and burned down car dealerships. Like, that was a real thing in Eugene in the 90s. It sounds kind of weird if you weren't there, but, like, that was a regular occurrence. They talk about that, about um, people who, they, they, like, lived in trees in Eugene yeah. to try, to protest and try and save a a couple really old trees that were going to be torn down for a parking lot. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. That's like 1997, right? I mean, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that was like eight blocks from my house. That was a huge deal when that happened. So yeah, the main it, character of this documentary was there. That's awesome. I think, I think, I think he was there or it was one of the things that inspired him to go to Eugene and be a part of the movement in, uh, in the Northwest. He's originally from New York. I think they, they should have interviewed me for this documentary. I would have had a lot <laughs> to contribute. <laughs> So, so you got to check it out now. It's a, it's on Prime. It's really easy to find. If a tree falls, a story of the Earth Liberation Front. Okay, uh, well, that is what we've been watching. Now let's get into uh, into everything else. We have a couple movies we're going to report on. One is a new release. Uh, one is a film that popped up on one of our top ten lists that we all decided to watch and talk about. Before we get into second half of the podcast, where we're going to be fairly uh centered on uh on cop movies which is going to be a lot of fun whether it's our power rankings or the movies that we had to watch for our trivia watches so stay tuned for that but first let's go into our featured review i love this movie so much i did not really like this film at all this is the most zach movie ever made you got to see it movie reviews and our featured review is going to be looking at uh, the new release just came out in theaters and HBO Max uh, this weekend, uh, planning on being a, somewhat of an awards contender, and that is Judas and the Black Messiah. Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Repeat after me. stolen car five years for impersonating a federal officer or you can go home the black badges are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color their aim is to sow hatred and inspire terror i will learn all that i can I these ain't no terrorists you can murder a liberator but you can't murder liberation you can murder but you can't murder revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom. Starring Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Sanfield, Jesse Clemens. Todd, I'm going to go to you first. Uh, no, I wasn't going to you first. I was going to Zach first. That's right. Zach, uh, tell us all about uh, Judas and the Black Messiah and what you thought. 
All right, so Judas and the Black Messiah is this 1973 film starring Pam Greer and Richard Roundtree, directed by oh, Jack Hill. Oh, wait, never mind. It just sounds like it's a black exploitation movie. Doesn't that have a great black exploitation title? Like, come on. Yeah, well, yeah I, can, I can see it. It's, yeah. Okay. Anyway, no, that was a lame joke. Uh, the actual Judas and the Black Messiah is uh, the new movie by Shaka King, starring Daniel Kaluuya as the Black Panthers leader in Chicago, um, Fred Hampton, who uh, was um, uh, crucial as an orchestrator um, of um, you know co coordinating the community around um, the Black Panthers in the, in the early seventies. He also was a target by J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. J. Edgar Hoover in this movie is played by a heavily makeuped uh martin sheen um and uh the movie tells the story not it's not a straightforward biopic of fred hampton's life but it more looks at this kind of crucial point in his life in which the fba tried to infiltrate the black panthers and the way they did this was by employing um a a, a driver named bill o'neill who's played in this movie by lakeith stanfield um to, as basically a mole inside the blank panthers to relay information back to j edgar hoover and uh a fbi uh officer played by jesse plemons his name is roy mitchell in the movie um this movie feels a lot like the departed it's uh the it's unmissable some of the parallels um and it feels like, I guess you could say, if you're being crude, you could sort of say it's like The Departed meets Malcolm X, um, in the sense that it's about, uh, you know, uh, moles inside this, this unit, um, but also about black activism in the 1960s and 70s. Um, you know, if you're going to make a biopic today, you can't really do a straightforward biopic. Um, it's kind of lame to do the, he was born at this time and then grew up. And what I really liked about this movie is that, um, not only did it look at the spe this specific point of Fred Hampton's life, not only was it not entirely about Fred Hampton, but it was based on a true story. And the way we know that is because it incorporates archival footage from the PBS, um, miniseries Eyes on the Prize 2, which aired in the late eighties, early nineties. And I just think that's a really cool way to kind of show this was a true story. It's so much more interesting than just having that title on, on the uh, screen that says this is based on a true story. Um, and as you watch the movie, it actually becomes that that part of the movie becomes really important, especially by the end of the movie in ways that, that you wouldn't expect. Um, Daniel Kaluuya's role performance in, uh, as Fred Hampton in this movie is magnificent. Uh, he, he has a body transformation. He has the oration skills. He, he is he magnifies the room. He electrifies the room. And Daniel Kaluuya is maybe not the first actor you would think to do that, because when I think Daniel Kaluuya, I think like Get Out or Widows, where he plays these kind of more the subdued, almost quiet characters. Um, but in this movie, he he dominates, and uh, he's gotten the Best Supporting Actor nomination from the Golden Globes. I think he's a strong contender for Best Supporting Actor at the Oscars. But I think equally brilliant in this movie is Lakeith Stanfield, who plays this protagonist who we're not really sure what his motivations are. He kind of remains this question mark throughout the movie. Is he loyal to the Panthers? Is he loyal to the FBI? What's kind of going on in his head? And um, I think he, Stanfield does a great job of just having that kind of distance between um, what what we perceive of him and what he's really thinking. And I, and I think credit also goes to the writing and direction of this movie by Shaka King. This is a great movie. Uh, I think it does everything that you want to see in a historical 
fact-based movie about real people. I knew a little bit about Fred Hampton going into this movie. I did not know anything about Bill O'Neill going into this movie. I found out a lot about these people. They meant a lot to me. Um, and uh, it told the story in a ridiculously entertaining way. Um, I, I was on the edge of my seat for a, a lot of this movie. The Jesse Plemons character, too, is really fascinating in a lot of ways that are unpredictable and unexpected as well. Um, I feel the, the only flaw of the movie is the Martin Sheen character. He comes off a little bit. He, he, he reminds me of Leo and Jay Edgar. It's just, uh, not, not a bad, uh, not something you want to be compared to. But other than that, um, this movie got better as it went along and I give it four stars. If this was a 2020 movie, it would have been on my top 10 of the year list. Uh, it, I, I hope it gets a lot of Oscar recognition. It does everything that you hope the historical drama that is thrilling and exciting, um, does. It's, uh, informative and entertaining and, um, you know, an awesome watch. So there you go. All right. All right. Four stars from Zach. Loved it. Todd, how about you? Where are you at with this one? Uh, okay. So the movie starts out with archival footage, which I thought was kind of annoying. Similar to Defy Bloods, it's like the footage is meant to get you riled up to watch the movie because evidently they couldn't do that themselves. Like, just show me. It's not a documentary. Like, that was a really bad way to start the movie. And the confrontations in the movie, I felt, were really stagey, whether they're in a car or in the bar or in a, like, stairwell. They never feel organic. It's just like they, they, uh, you know, they set up shop and they have a conversation that never feels like I'm watching a movie. Everything has to be a play uh, for this Oscar season, apparently, and this is no different. Uh, and they also use music from Sideways in this twice. Like, the, when Miles, after, right after Miles and Maya, like, first hook up, it, they use that bit of music when Fred and Deborah first kiss, and again when he gets out of jail. I, now, I don't even know if that's original to Sideways anymore. I always assumed it was Rolfie Kent's score, but maybe it's not. Like, it took me out of the movie for, like, a minute because it was so distracting and just a really, really odd choice. Did you guys catch that? Yes. I was, not. I was wondering weird, who would no, if either of you would notice it. I'm, I'm glad. How weird is that? Was, is that sideways music? I I have no clue. I, I thought it was Rolfie's original music, too. It wasn't listen. I, I went on like a 15-minute deep dive about it. I didn't see any attribution to Rolfie Ken. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, either way, odd choice. Um, I think Lakeith Stanfield is amazing in the movie. He's the most nuanced and most complicated character, and I don't know why he isn't getting any Oscar love, because he is every bit as good as... Daniel Kaluuya, who definitely gives the loudest performance, but it's also another killer performance with his eyes, like, only he can really do. Like, he is absolutely going to win the Oscar, or at least be runner-up. It, it reminded me a, a little bit of, like, Robert Duvall and The Apostle, with, like, how just electrifying he is to watch. Uh, and Jesse Plemons is sympathetic, and he plays it in a way that only really he could do, I guess, too. Uh, the movie, I, I think, well, it, like, kind of dabbles in a whole bunch of different genres, which is an intriguing way to tell the story. And makes it not just like a Chicago 7, like, style biopic where it's a little loose with the facts and just for dramatic effect. Like, because of this, the movie, like, really moves. Like, you don't necessarily even need to take it seriously to be really entertained by it. And, yeah, the makeup work on Martin Sheen is, I mean, it's truly terrifying and really bad. I, I, don't, know <laughs> what, I don't know what that was. Uh, but like every other movie up for awards this year, I have mixed feelings. I think the screenplay is really jumbled. And I guess that's what you get when you have a, a, a writing team of a comedy writer, the director, and then the twins from 22 Jump Street working together, all of them making their first movie, which you can kind of tell. Like, it, it kind of is a kind of a mess uh, at times. And I, I, there's also this really lame wink at the Oscars where Jesse Plemons looks directly into the camera and says, 
that uh, O'Neill might be worthy of an Academy Award, I was just, I just like rolled my eyes. I was like, it was just such a bad moment. And one thing I thought would have made the movie better if they had leaned on the fact that that uh, Hampton was only 21, like not someone who looks like they're in the mid 30s, which you know Daniel Kaluuya does. That would have given it another layer of power. And I also didn't really like the like inside FBI stuff because. Like, the best scene in the movie is when Mitchell is at the rally, because that's what that character should have been. He should have just been, like, lingering around, poking O'Neill, you know, keeping him in line, and, and you know, just, like, looking more like a villain than somebody you eventually have some sort of affection for. Like, all those scenes with him and, like, uh, with Clemens and the, and his boss, or, like, them on the phone with J. Edgar Hoover, would just seem completely out of place. It, it, that would have been more of, like, a miniseries kind of like vibe and maybe that would have served the story better i really want to give this three stars but i can't i'm giving it two and a half stars Ooh, ooh. wow wow all right well uh that leaves it to me and uh i i'm of course in the middle but i'm much much closer to zach i'm Shocker. giving this three and a half stars um and i i really i really enjoyed it i th- i i agree with most of what zach said that it, it was extremely engaging performances are incredible um uh i think todd mentioned uh daniel kaluuya acting with his eyes i think lakeith stanfield is very good with that too and uh just uh how much he can just act with his face and that's something that is kind of hard to do and he both of them are very good at it um yeah jesse plemons is doing jesse plemons things here um when i saw martin sheen i thought like john lithgow in bombshell like that was kind of the the makeup work that looked like was done on martin sheen there um, but, uh, uh, there were, there were a few things I, I, I struggle with. Oh, and also don't forget, uh, Dominique Fishback, who we talked about, um, as the, the little girl in, uh, Project Power, who apparently was like 35 when she played that character in that movie with, uh, Jamie Foxx. And now she's actually playing a little closer to her age. Um, but, uh, it was cool to see her in something else. Um, but a, a couple things with this one, um, yeah. Martin Sheen was distracting. Also, Lil Howery, that was a, just a distracting character that didn't quite feel like it, it fit. I mean, his scene was crucial, but it was just weird to see him, you know, dre- literally dressed up like something out of a 70s exploitation movie. Um, and then uh, the the main thing I, I struggled with was um, it really made, uh, it made Fred Hampton out to be almost like this angelic perfect figure like like usually when you look at something like this you look at a character like this you want to see you want to see the entirety of their of that person warts and all and i think it it really for for dramatic effect left out the warts i mean i, I don't know that much about him but i there you know there had to be some sort of other side to him that you'd never see like you you it really makes him out to be a a Christ-like figure, like the title says, um, and trying to, to make him as uh, as uh, heroic and uh, and perfect as possible, and um, really try and build him up as this archetype of what you want to what you want to achieve achieve to be. Um, that was really one of the one of the only things I, I had trouble with is that it never showed him in that other light of being that like that like perfect perfect figure but other than that i i loved it the performances were great the the i thought the writing was was great the direction was really good too um and uh i i thought it was also interesting like there's several movies this um 
this award season that you can look at and uh, pull back to Trial of Chicago 7. Like, we talked about how Mangrove was very similar to Trial of Chicago 7 in the type of story it told. And then you have Judas and the Black Messiah, which, um, I mean, Fred Hampton is in Trial of Chicago 7. He's he's the guy who's always sitting behind Bobby Seale, and they all they even talk about this event in Trial of the Chicago Seven, um, and this is just a much darker, grittier version of of some of the stuff that uh, that Trial of the Chicago Seven was dealing with. So um, I'm giving it three and a half, um, uh, pretty solid three and a half stars for me. But um, but yeah, I, I'm much closer to Zach than I am to Todd on this one. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the Chicago 7, because likewise, Bobby Seale is also mentioned in this movie, yeah. uh, too. Yeah, and the trial uh, yeah. with Bobby Seale, yeah. And I think this is a perfect kind of companion piece to the Chicago 7, and I think it actually sort of exploits some of the Chicago, Chicago 7's weaknesses as a movie, which is that it's talky. It's very much about characters, uh, you know, who are kind of from this upper crust white intelligentsia who are rubbing shoulders with each other almost as celebrities. Whereas this movie is about what it was like on the streets, okay? What it was like in the protests, in the movement, in the Black Panthers meetings. Um, and um, going to your point, Terry, about Fred Hampton as a character, um, I think they kind of do show that one of his flaws in a way was how he butted heads with the crowns in this movie and how, you know, in, in his attempts to, to seek out solidarity among other activist groups um he wasn't always the most um respected even in chicago and that was something that um you know eventually he comes around and gets but you know and then at the same time too the the character with the with the warts in this movie so to speak is is the bill o'neill character i mean i think that's that's what he functions as is is the is the person who you really have severe kind of moral doubts about um Going back to what Todd said, though, I don't, I don't find the screenplay that muddled. I mean, I, I, I think that it, that the, the exchanges that the characters have are all really fascinating. I found the dialogue to be really realistic, and I thought that the the Jesse Plemons character in particular was someone who was complex in the ways that he's he's someone who is a part of the FBI as a system, and yet he has to suppress you know, his own feelings about what he works for. And yeah, maybe that dynamic would have been explored more in a miniseries, but I thought that Jesse Plemons did a great job of showing that in the scenes that, that he had. So I don't know what more this movie could have done. I think your criticism is that it should have gone deeper as a miniseries, which I think means that you thought it was a good movie. Well, no, I mean, I, I feel like the the movie is really specific, but it makes you want to feel like it's universal, but it's not. So that that's the problem with having the scenes with the FBI is that is that it, it takes away from the message of the movie and th- and that that makes it be more of a genre movie and not something that you're actually going to take something away from like morally or something like that you know because like the, the, you you're not supposed to like the FBI character like he's supposed to be the guy who's forcing O'Neill to do things that he doesn't want to do or, or that he it might be morally opposed to, but he really is just out for himself, sort of, I don't know. I mean, but it like when you show him at his work, then it takes away from the actual plot of the movie, I feel like. Mm, that's, a bit, that's like where, where I think the archival footage is really 
important. And I'm surprised that you, you really didn't like the use of that because, like, I feel like the Bill O'Neill character speaks for himself in, in a way that, um, doesn't show the director's sort of agenda in any way. And I think that stuff is really powerful because it actually tells the, you know, significance of, of who this character was and his feelings about what happens over the course of this movie, even though you can never read him. He has a poker face the whole time. I thought that was a really unique framing device as a story. Well, I don't, I don't, the interview with O'Neill, like, I, I don't have a problem with that. It was like everything else, like just showing the, the footage at the beginning is just something that's supposed to like get you just riled up to, to go watch this movie about, about the Black Panthers and about these activists. And like, they couldn't have done that in a way where they didn't have to use someone else's footage. I mean, I mean, I, I felt the same thing in, in Defy Bloods. It was, it, it was like, they show you shocking images that were real because they want you to go into it with a certain mindset, but they couldn't do that organically. So they just, I don't know. I think, I think all that showing is that this is a real story and here are some of the pieces of it. I, no, I think you're being pretty picky and petty with that. And I, I, I see no problem with that. Well, that wasn't even one of my, that was just the, 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 the thing that started off wrong. But I, I mean, I, I have way more problems with the middle of the movie and, and how, how it's told, but I don't think the the conversations are organic at all. Like, when he goes to, uh, you know, recruit the other people for the Rainbow Coalition, like, th- those things just seemed like such staged, like, nonsense. Like, th- there's no way anything happened like that. They just, like, roll up into a bar, and then all of a sudden, they're all, like, at a standoff, like, right across from each other, and they start pulling guns on each other. Like, I, I it's just, it's just it, everything just felt like it, it was just, I mean, it was a big setup. It was, it never felt real. It but they like explain. They explain that in the movie, though. They, sh- they and it's sometimes through secondhand dialogue. But like the Jesse Plemons character explains basically what happens to these other black militant groups who are very much um, paranoid about FBI infiltration. And I think that explains why there's so much hostility between these groups, even if it's not necessarily clear in that moment in the movie. I would also just kind of like to second what you said, Terry, about Dominique Fishback. In, in a perfect world with a better Oscar campaign, she would be getting serious supporting actress um, consideration. She's phenomenal in this movie. And uh, I don't know why this movie is, isn't getting more traction with the Oscars, but um, maybe it got released too late. Maybe it's the 2021 thing. I don't know. But I mean, this is a movie that should be getting a lot more attention than it's getting, for, particularly for those three leads. And um, it's, it's disappointing that it's not. Well, I think... Daniel Kaluuya is one of the favorites. I mean, I think it's like him and Sasha Baron Cohen right now are looking at as the favorites for yeah. best supporting actor. Yeah, Leo Jr. Yeah, let's... yeah, yeah. He's he's in that mix too. I mean, we haven't really had a major award um, award show yet, so we really don't know where everything's sitting. But I think it's it's pretty safe to say he's right in that mix. And at this point, no one would argue if he won the Oscar. Um, I for me, if he wins it, he it's definitely deserved. Um, because he he is incredible in this. One of the things that I've heard, um, one of the criticisms I've heard about this movie is that it kind of, um, the movie gets slow in the middle uh, because Daniel Kaluuya is not involved in the middle. Um, and and it's true, but I think that also that, that plays into kind of the mood of the story as well. I mean, it's supposed to kind of do that. Um, but that just shows how dynamic a performance he gives in the fact that if he's not on screen, all you want is him to be back on screen. <laughs> I'm good with Lakeith Stanfield. Like him and Jesse Plemons, those are my guys. <laughs> so, I mean, they're <laughs> well, and, and together. They, yeah, are they give great performances moments. too. Yeah. All right, so we've got four stars from Zach. We got three and a half from me. We've got two and a half from Todd. Uh, 
Uh, so, so yeah, that it that is uh, Judas and Black Messiah. Make sure you uh, you check that out. It is in theaters and on HBO Max right now. So, that is our first review. Now on to our our next review, and this is going to be uh, this is our spotlight segment, and we're uh, looking at another movie, and um, we're doing it today. And Todd had the idea that we can kind of make this a running thing for the next. Uh, next few podcasts, which I I don't mind, of looking at movies that were on each other's top ten lists that uh, either none of the others or maybe one of the others has seen. And that is the case with this one. Uh, This movie popped up as number one on Adam's uh, top ten of 2020. It is the favorite for Best International Film at the Oscars. Uh, and it is the latest from Mods Mickelson and Thomas Vinterberg, Another Round. Uh, so, Zach, I'm going to go to you first. To no, 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 go, to, go top. Oh, wait, I did this, this wrong twice. again. <laughs> I screwed it up twice. Oh, man. Okay, well, Todd, you're going first on this one. So uh, tell us about Another Round and what you thought. So Another Round was the Thomas Vinterberg movie from just last year. Uh so the theory of Finn Skardarud says that the human body's optimal blood alcohol content is 0.05%, and increasing it to that level will help your brain and your life by making you more social and more creative and have more ambition. So four friends decide that they're going to put that theory to the test when they come uh, to some sort of a rut in their lives. Mods Mickelson plays Martin, who's a history teacher, and his three buddies are his colleagues at the school, and they similarly have been uh, resigned to being sort of boring instructors, kind of despising their own existence and their deeply unhappy home lives. So they get really excited about the prospects of the experiment, probably just because they want something to break the cycle of their, like, perpetual decline of their their lives. Uh, Vinterberg is a great director, as long as he is not making it in the English language. Like, his other 2020 movie was this movie with Colin Firth called The Command, and that was pretty bad. As was his period piece he made, Far From the Madding Crowd. But The Hunt is obviously fantastic, as we have established on past episodes. Like, he's he's a great director, just keep him keep him away from America. Because uh, if this was an American movie, this would have, like... Keep him near mods. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that yeah, too. Keep him, near, keep him near mods. Uh... If it was made in America, it would star like Paul Rudd, or just like the cast of Tag, or something like that, and it would be a complete joke. <laughs> but this movie takes itself seriously enough, but it's still kind of wild and a lot of fun. Like I love when the guy's like, "Okay, okay, we'll do this, but we're gonna write like a scholarly essay about it, so that we can justify it to ourselves." Like that—that that is just a perfect way that to <laughs> to like usher in the uh, usher in the experiment. Because uh, I mean, otherwise, oh, yeah, they would just be getting drunk every day. Uh, I feel like it could have been about, like, the ups and downs of alcohol, but it's after something deeper. It's more about, like, you're seeing a version of yourself that you want to be and, like, trying to achieve that, but that version not necessarily being the version that the people in your lives actually want or that how they came to know you or love you. It's also about, like, learning to enjoy the little things in life that make life worth living, similar to soul in that way, I guess. It would have been... It's, I guess it could be an interesting companion piece with, like, The Way Back, but it's, like, way more responsible because they don't actually drink and drive at all in this movie, which is uh, something The Way Back did not uh, achieve. Uh, it also kind of reminded me of Smashed, uh, which, uh, especially when they're more talking, when it's focusing on their, like, their domestic lives uh, of the guys. Uh, there's way too much off in the movie, but 
<laughs> even with that, it's it's funny. It's like tragic. It's uncomfortable and exhilarating and painful and sort of hopeful in the end. I love this movie. I'm giving it three and a half stars, and I now actually have it my number eight of 2020. Wow. Okay. Okay. All right. I'll go next on this one. Um, and yes, I, I meant to, to say that I'm going next. Um, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I agree with a lot of what you, you said. I'm giving it three and a half as well. Um, I really like what you were saying about uh, if this were in America, it would be played more as a joke. And now I'm trying to think of if it were in America and taken with as much sincerity as, as this was, who would play those characters? That, that's kind of a hard one to, to figure out, but I'll keep thinking about it. Um, being, a, being a teacher, movies that take that star teachers i always find find fascinating and and go to a different level for me and that that was the case here um uh, you you mentioned a whole lot of smirnoff uh you also have to remember this is a danish movie so smirnoff kind of flows freely there i'm sure oh sure um <laughs> uh so so there is, i mean it's like saying that an american movie has way too much jack daniels or something like that um but uh but yeah no, I, I i love this movie as well uh mods mickelson the range on that guy and, and how he can be so subtle in all of his performances yet be completely dynamic in them at the same time. I mean, this is a guy who, who has gone from being Hannibal to being a Bond villain, and now he's, he's a history teacher that um, you know shines when he's intoxicated uh, and apparently can dance. We, we didn't know that about him either. Um, and I, I've seen several people say that the, the ending of this is one of the greatest scenes of 2020, and I wouldn't necessarily argue with that. Um, you kind of saw where it was going from the from uh, early on, which is what's keeping it from a four-star movie for me. Um, you you kind of saw where the story arc would end up, um, which it isn't necessarily a horrible thing, but it definitely is something where... Um, where it's it didn't leave you guessing, uh, which I always like to see in a in a in a four star movie for me. So uh, so with that, I, I'm I'm giving it a very very high three and a half. It's like in in that ten to fifteen range or eleven to fifteen range on my uh, on my top of the year, but uh, a really really awesome movie. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll be I'll be happy when it wins international film. Uh, all right, so Zach. You watched this movie a week ago, and you wanted to hear what we had to think about uh, of it. So, so now that you've heard, what do you think, and what do you think about what we think? <laughs> uh, well, I, we can safely say we're, we're thrice approved, although technically four approved. I don't quartet approved. Quad. I, I'm going quad. Quad. I like it. So, I also gave this movie three and a half stars. Although I, I guess I would say maybe I'm a little less enthusiastic, maybe a little closer to three than four stars. Uh, but it was a really enjoyable movie for much of the same reasons that, that you guys have already pointed out. Um, I was reminded a lot of The Hunt in this movie, actually. Um, not just because it was Mads Mikkelsen, but it was also about a character who is kind of stigmatized because of the decisions that he makes, but also the circumstances that he finds himself getting into. I th and, I, and I think there were, I don't know, there were some, some uniquely maybe, I don't know, Nordic qualities to the relationships between the characters. Um, I guess I, I, the, the thing that I, I, 
I don't think there are enough good movies about alcoholism. I think it, I think it's something that is actually um, simultaneously overrepresented and underrepresented at the same time. Overrepresented in the sense that alcoholism becomes a punchline for way too many characters, particularly in American movies. I absolutely agree with Todd's point that this would be a forgettable Paul Rudd movie, but underrepresented in the sense that um, usually, you know, there's there's a reason why these characters are led to drinking, whether it's through uncontrollable circumstances in their own lives or trauma, and in this circumstance. It's these guys who kind of find themselves bored, um, which to me is not the most compelling reason to get emotionally invested in a character. But I think, you know, once you start watching the movie, you understand the maybe the desperation that they feel, particularly the Mads Mikkelsen character. I couldn't really understand the other three quite as well. I actually sort of had a hard time distinguishing who was who. They all kind of looked the same. Um, but... Um, I did like the movie. I, I agree with Todd. I like that sort of the, the, the treatise that they write. It almost feels like a Lars von Trier movie in a way. Not surprisingly, it's it's uh, Lars von Trier's studio, Xenotropa, which is producing this. And the poster for this movie actually looks like Nymphomaniac a little bit. Um, I guess I would also say that I... D- I don't really love the resolution of this movie uh, because it becomes more of an... How should I say? It becomes more of an exercise than actually something that care that realistically people would go through i think the the movie tries to do its due diligence by showing the consequences of drinking with one of the characters but the other three character well again i don't want to spoil too much of it but but the other characters just sort of i don't know it they kind of move on and i don't think that's a very accurate way of depicting alcoholism uh and let's be honest all three all all these characters become alcoholics in the movie so um at, at, at the same time, though, I did think that the ending was pretty unique and special and something that only a European director would do. So I, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about that. But it is a really enjoyable movie, fun movie to watch, particularly if you're not really into foreign language movies. I mean, th- this would be, I think, a, a movie that a lot of Americans, American, dumb American audiences would get into. Not because it's a dumb movie, but because I think the characters uh, are really understandable and relatable and um, there's some great performances in it. So a low three and a half stars for me. I Not quite as enthusiastic as Adam is, but it's still it's still a worthwhile movie to check out i think it's interesting um one of the points that you made also about it being a a uh, foreign film instead of an american film a lot of american movies about alcoholism and alcohol in general are are uh approach it in terms of excess and and as a vice um this is much more approaching it as curiosity almost Mm -hmm. and um and i think it, it it shows I mean, Zach, you and I have been to Europe. It shows just the the different attitude um, that Europe has towards alcohol as opposed to a lot of the attitudes here and a lot of the stereotypes around it, where here it is looked at much more as a vice and something that you you do to excess instead of just something that is much more social and and just kind of a part of life uh, as it is in in Europe. Would, would, Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I, I guess that's fair. And um, I think in, in a way, they're more responsible with alcohol, which is going back to Todd's point about the drunk driving. I thought that was actually a really interesting point in the movie is how, how conscious they are just to, to do that very thing to not drunk drive or drink and drive, excuse me. But um, yeah, like yeah he has I, a couple swigs like early in the day. And then by the end of the day, he's still like, I, I'm not driving. <laughs> you know, I was, I, was like, I was like, oh, OK, good job, dude. <laughs> 
And I mean, there's another seat, there's another exchange in this movie that involves someone who is underage, who is instructed to drink as a way to cure the ailments that they have. And I don't see that scene really flying in an American movie, at least in the way that this movie shows it as kind of like a almost funny, you know, kind of, you know, cute scene in a way. But, um, but no, I, I, well, it starts out with like, the kids being completely wasted and like the teachers know that uh, about the students so i mean it, it really is just accepted that people are going to drink regardless so yeah well and it definitely also another th- yeah another thing to remember is in much of europe the drinking age is 16 and the driving age is 18 so you they, they learn to drink before they learn to drive which I, I makes a whole lot of sense to me i don't know yeah, I, but I, I do agree, though, with Todd's point that the movie does find a really good balance between, you know, more um, a moral lesson, but also really fun to watch at the same time. And I think that's a hard, hard line to balance because it's not a movie that advocates drinking, but it's also not a moralistic hygiene film from the 50s that shows that, you know, is meant to scare the living shit out of you. Like, it does a good job, I think, of balancing that. I just... I don't know. I I didn't. I wish there had been maybe another chapter to the characters' lives, or something that maybe even could show us how Mads got to the final scene. Because I'm kind of curious. I think there's like an, almost a chapter missing from the story, but maybe that's not what this movie is, and that's okay. It's still an enjoyable movie. Yeah, I would argue. I would argue that some of that uh, that not all of them necessarily become alcoholics. I don't. Well, yeah, I think I think they're able to, they're able to to learn their lesson and go on being responsible drinkers um, at the end of the movie. Yeah, when they go on their like serious bender, like they they definitely have they have the the like superiority mentally to be able to compartmentalize what they're doing. So, I mean, so yeah, I guess there's. That. I get that. I get that. I wish the movie just could have shown that. I think maybe in a little bit more detail for me. Because there's like there's no relapse in this movie. I mean, it, it's kind of like, Bing Bang, they're over it. And I don't know. I, I I don't I don't feel like that's very realistic. But again, that's maybe not what the what the filmmaker you know the film it has two hours to show these events right. So extend it out maybe. But like you know I get it. But it's it's a missing chapter that I think is is sort of important in this journey that they have. Well, they're like childlike almost in a way while they're doing it. It's almost like they just turn twenty one and they just go on a bender for like a month and then. After that, like, you probably don't want to see alcohol again for quite a while. But Also, I think this movie has my favorite fishing scene ever, when they go try to catch fresh cod. That was, that was just a beautiful scene. That was a great scene. That was, that was awesome. And the guy who that. needs it, isn't even, he's not even there. I, I, I love that concept, too. It's like they're all out in the store, so they just go onto the dock and try to catch some. That was, that was great. Uh, that was great. All right. Well, uh, thrice approved, quad approved, really, with uh, another round. Um, it is. Um, it's a fairly cheap rental right now, streaming like six or seven bucks. Uh, so uh, pretty, pretty inexpensive to find, and definitely worth a watch. And uh, yes, this is like I said, this is the favorite at the Oscars right now for international film. And wouldn't it be great if somehow Mads Mikkelsen cracked the Best Actor lineup? I mean, I think I think he's he's a dark horse to get in there and. Uh, I don't think it would be a complete shock if he did. Get that Antonio so. Banderas nomination. Antonio Banderas or Javier Bardem in Beautiful, something like that. That that's that's the level it would be there. Okay. All right. So that there's our movie reviews, and now it's time to shift gears into 
our power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. And Todd, you won last time. You won our game of guessing Adam's list. And it's been a little while. It's been, I think, three weeks because we had our uh, our best of list in there, too. So uh, tell us what we are what we are counting down and uh, all the parameters we had around this because I, I, there was quite a few quite a debate one, over the last twenty four hours. I know, I know, but uh, yeah. Anyways, talk about it. Uh, okay, so we are doing the top five cop movies because for me, I don't know. I I grew up my entire life. I wanted to be a police officer. I idolized police officers, and that bled into my movie taste because I love. Everything about cop movies, whether it's a buddy cop movie or like a, like an undercover cop movie or a dirty cop movie, it doesn't matter. Like these are like my movies, and I haven't had a list that was super indulgent in a while, and so <laughs> I wanted to do to see what you guys would come up with for your cop movies. And the only thing I said was like I didn't want you guys to try to like like do some bullshit list thing, and so I want the protagonist of the movie has to be a cop. So it actually has to center around a police officer, even if it ne- isn't necessarily a movie about police. So we get we have one rule, and you guys one of the protagonists you said right yeah one of the protagonists has to be a cop. I I guess yeah. So if there's multiple <laughs> main characters, then sure. But like oh. I, I what I was thinking, I honestly was thinking like I don't want Zach to just be like, oh, I'm calling super bad a cop movie because the because hey, the cops are like the fifth and sixth main characters. That's, that's not fair. That but, was okay. that was the first thing I thought when I was when I made that rule. And then you yesterday were just like, "Well, I I wanted to use this." Like, no. <laughs> that, that's not a cop movie. Yeah. And apparently mall cops don't count either. Well, there's that, security that, guards. That, that that doesn't count. Well, I guess well, I mean, we'll see what happens, but like I have movies, you said cop movies, and I have movies that are about cops, but I don't know if they're cop movies. I don't know. We'll we'll see what happens. Let's, let's just well, as you know, long say- as the co- as long as the main character is a cop, I guess it I guess it uh, works. But I mean, I I eliminated some because I don't consider it a cop movie, even though the main character is a cop. So like, if, if what if like the like a a kind of major supporting character is a cop? So are you talking no. about the fugitive or something? <laughs> like, I mean, that's not even a, he's not even a cop really. But I mean, like that kind of idea. Yeah. Sure. I I mean, I guess. I guess. What so. if there's no lead character? Okay. What if I'm, it's ensemble? I don't know if that counts. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm actually changing my list a little bit because of how you've just you've just defined it for me. Yeah, I, I'm changing I, I mine actually. I heard you say too. one of the main characters has to be a cop, so I'm changing my list around here a little bit and changing some stuff. Well, um, if, if none of them are main characters, then the movie has to be like the, the characters have to be cops. Then I would say. What if we don't know that the character's a cop? What is it? Whatever. I don't know. Okay, never mind. mind. So so some of the questions that we've had, these questions are stupid, but some of the questions we have had, uh, we we had to specify, what if, does this like include like FBI? Like, could we go like Clarice Starling and Silence of the Lambs type of deal? And the answer was no, it has to be police. Um, And then I had the question, do like, um, does like Wild West Sheriff count? Um, and Todd said, well, I mean, they are kind of law enforcement, so I guess. So technically, <laughs> yes, you could put Toy Story on your list if you really wanted to. <laughs> Local wow. law enforcement. 
That's not a, it's not a cop movie, though. <laughs> yes. That's, you didn't cop. say that. You didn't say that. Yeah. You said main character had to be police. I said that's all you top said. five cop movies, too. Like, I just yeah. wanted to make sure that we were actually doing it by making the... Per- like, <laughs> the cops actually have to be in the main character. <sighs> okay. All right. You guys right. are going to screw this up. I already... I mean, it's, it's I think I think I fixed it so I'm not screwing it up. So, uh, I had one that probably was going to screw it up. No, no, I, I'm predicting that Adam is going to royally screw this up. Yes. So. Oh, yeah, that's true. I did say the exact same thing I said to you guys, so he, maybe, I don't know, maybe he's not even doing movies, maybe he's doing characters like Zach was going to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, alright, I'm going to go first here, um, and uh, so my number five is, uh, I had to, this is the one I pulled an audible on, because... Uh, Todd just messed everything up for me. Uh, not everything, but uh, one of the things that I I in I, I um, inadvertently did on this was I um, I made my uh, I made my top five, and without even realizing it, I have one from every or from uh, diff- each one is from a different decade. So that that's something I, I did without even realizing I did it. So my number five is my entry from the twenty tens. Uh, this is from 2016, um, and it is about someone who, their entire life, all they've wanted to be is a cop, and they finally get their chance. It's not necessarily all they have, all they thought it was going to be, but they kind of make it into that amazing uh, experience and uh, and show that they are truly worthy of of being a cop, even though everyone said they couldn't do it. Everyone said it couldn't be done. There's no way a bunny can be a cop. That's right. It is Zootopia. Uh, that is my number five. Um, it's just a, such a fun movie. And honestly, I think it's really, you could say, the only animated movie that you could truly say is a cop movie. Um, and uh, and you got Judy Hopps, who has uh, who's worked her way up into being a police officer and and how she's able to to navigate all that with the help of her her uh, her uh, CI in uh, in the the Fox play, uh, voiced by Jason Bateman. Now it's great. Uh, it's such a fun movie. It's a great movie, and I think totally is a cop movie. So that's my number five. I can think of one other animated movie. That's uh, Team America: World Police, but you know. Well, I guess is that really animated though? I mean, it's action figures. <laughs> Touche. All right. Zach, you're next. Number five. Okay, well, I, I mean, I've had to do a lot of shuffling. I really wanted to talk about Paul Blart, but you know what? If we don't call him a serious cop, then whatever. Um, I'm going to go with a movie that um, we've actually, we mentioned um, briefly last week. Um, I don't even know if either of you have seen this movie, quite honestly, but it's a movie I've thought about a lot since I first saw it. And it's a movie that is criminally underseen from the early 90s with our boy Bill Paxton. And that movie is called One False Move, directed by Carl Franklin. And it is an awesome, underrated movie from the early 90s. It tells the story of a small-town sheriff played by Bill Paxton. And he gets word that there is this robbery slash assault that takes place with this band of criminals headed by Billy Bob, a young Billy Bob Thornton. Very ominous in this movie. One of his great early performances. And they are on 
their way with their stash of goods to this small town in Arkansas where Bill Paxton is this kind of Andy Griffith like sheriff who is howdy y'all and you know the the big city LA cops are also there and they really kind of don't think much of the Bill Paxton character they think he's just this yokel who kind of gets in their way um but as you watch the movie there is much, much more information about the Bill Paxton character's backstory and how he even has maybe a relationship a little bit with these bands of thieves that are on their way to his small town. There's a reason why they're headed to Arkansas. Um, again, uh, a movie where the police officer is the central character in the story. It's it's one of Paxton's best performances. We were trashing his acting skills in Twister, but he's really good in this movie. I think, I wish he had had more roles like this, where he appears to be very naive and rednecky, but deep down, he's hiding a secret that, um, you know, says a lot more about his character and his backstory, and uh, I don't know whatever happened to Carl Franklin. I think he made Devil in a Blue Dress, which I believe is also a pretty good police movie with Denzel Washington, but uh, uh, this movie's underrated, underseen, and it's I I always think it's one of the best cop movies. So one false move, check it out. Have either of you seen that? I have not. Okay. When you said early '90s Bill Paxton, I thought you were going to go Tombstone. Absolutely not. <laughs> well, that's where I thought you were going with the whole sheriff in the West type. But uh, I actually ended up not going with any of those. But I just wanted to know if that was a possibility or not. So yeah, mad props by the way for the Zootopia pick. That is actually a really great. I actually pick. thought about it too. Yeah. All right, Todd, number five. So for mine, I realized I just had way too many to choose from. I should have made this more succinct of a category. So I have five different, like, cop movie categories, kind of, and I chose one from each of them. So my number five is my buddy cop pick. It's, I mean, it it qualifies as a buddy cop pick, and that's Dragged Across Concrete, the 2019 movie. Uh, Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn play two cops who get suspended for their shady police work and so they like follow a lead to try to get a big score payday because uh the suspension is pretty strong because there's a video and they're probably not getting their jobs back and gibson and vaughn i think give both the best performances of their careers uh and since a lot of the movie isn't is like they're suspended i i question whether i should include it but they're still doing cop things like they're doing stakeouts they're uh, you know, interviews and tra- uh, trailing guys, and it's really like a buddy cop movie to end all buddy cop movies because it's not about their friendship; it's about how cops are just cops, and like if when their work's taken away, they really have nothing else to fall back on. It's like I, I think the movie is kind of like watching Hank Schrader <coughs> and Gomez like out in the field for two and a half hours. Like, yes. I think it's a fascinating it's movie a to watch, comparison. and I I love Drag Across Concrete. So my buddy cop pick, uh, I I went there instead of going with the comedy. It was going to be on your list. We all knew it. It's a solid I pick. Wasn't even, I wasn't even sure it was going to be on my list. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> that was like a you late ta- addition. <laughs> it barely made it. Barely made it. You've talked about that movie a lot. It's a solid movie. It's a, it's a good pick. I still need to see that one. All right. Uh, number four on my list uh, is uh, going back to the 60s. Uh, this might be like the most like serious movie on my list uh it was it won best picture in 1967 it is in the heat of the night uh starring Sidney Poitier and uh and Rod Steiger um I just saw this movie for the first time recently uh like within the last year or two and it is an amazing movie a fascinating film um especially when you think of the context of the 60s I mean this is in the middle of the civil rights movement and to make a movie 
um, about a black man going to going to the South and aiding in an investigation with with these Hicks Southern cops in and uh, trying to find a find a, a killer on the run. Um, Podia gives one of his best performances that I've seen, um, and uh, and Rod Steiger does an amazing job. Also, I. I feel like the ending is a little too wink, wink, happy ending type of deal, and and a little too uh, feel good to really hit home the way it, it should. But uh, but it's still an amazing film, and I mean I think Sidney Poitier had one of the best years of any actor in 1967. We think of In the Heat of the Night and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner coming out that year. Um, he had he had an amazing year, and both films with kind of similar themes. Looking at it in two completely different contexts, but um, as I was looking at it, this is one of the last ones that kind of made my list. As I realized, hey, I'm going like every every decade here, so I had to come up with. This was the only one on my short list that wasn't from one of the decades I'd already chosen, so it ended up making my list. So, in the heat of the night, my choice from the '60s. I mean, it's kind of a hard one to argue with. So I have a question: Are we still doing our Merlot rule? Because I kind of like that. <laughs> I mean, we could, we could. I'm Would not sure if we're going to have any overlap, but I mean, if we do, that'd be. Yeah, we never have any overlap on these things, so Maybe I mean, we can see. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. We can Merlot it if it if it happens. All right, Zach, number four. All right, so my number four, um, Todd may get a little mad at, but it's a movie that uh, was one of the first that I thought of when he mentioned cop movies, and you know. When we think about cops, we think about very serious things. Um, but, you know, oftentimes we forget the lighter side of cop life, um, including when you have to, you know, sing the national anthem with Queen Elizabeth in the bleachers or um, perform as Phil Donahue at the Oscars. And there's only one police detective who's ever done that, and that is Lieutenant Frank Drebin. And so my pick is, I guess we could go the entire Naked Gun series, but... I knew this was coming. <laughs> I think my favorite Naked Gun movie is Naked Gun 33 and a Third, which yes, is, is with Frank Drebin, who is semi-retired. It's a little bit like Drag, Drag by Concrete, actually, because he's very bored with his life with Priscilla Presley. And so he gets involved by going to a sperm bank where Anna Nicole Smith works. Of course, he thinks it's an actual bank, but uh, it's a sperm bank. Hey, that haven't seen that one before. Um, but uh, we also have the inimitable O.J. Simpson, O.J. Simpson's last movie. Uh, and uh, he plays his sidekick. There is a great opening sequence in this movie. Whether you think this movie is stupid or not, the opening sequence is a ripoff of the Battle Potemkin sequence uh, from, um, or excuse me, the Odessa Step sequence from the, the Battleship Potemkin. It's, uh, it's except with babies, it's hilarious. And then when he says, "Look out! It's disgruntled postal workers," uh, just you know, it, it gets it gets you every time. The 1994 humor is so topical so aged poorly that it's just hilarious and um it the final 25 minutes are the biggest single takedown of the oscars in any movie imaginable it is hilarious and uh you're walking along the street where there's a party i still have that raquel welch song stuck in my head um after that movie and obviously you don't know the words though, so. well i i just I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm like frank drebin on stage i'm just improvising moving along and uh anytime you have a movie with the line i i think phil donahue was throwing up into a tuba you know it's a winner and it's a great cop movie too so check it out all the naked gun movies but in particular naked gun 33 and a third nicely done yeah yeah i mean that that was yes everyone knew that one was coming but, but that's okay that's okay 
it's a good one. It's a good one to have on there. All right, Todd, number four. Uh, for number four is my entry of a dirty cop movie, and that is 2011's Oren Wooverman movie Rampart, which is oh. a really... Yeah, that's not getting Merlot. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. A really, just, it's a brutal movie to watch, uh, and uh, it's uh, it stars Woody Harrelson as a... He's a veteran, like, racist, misogynist cop in L.A. Rampart division, although he really just kind of hates everybody, including himself, probably. Yeah. Uh, but it's a character study, and it, like, dives into his home life and his professional life. It has, like, the legends about his corrupt police work over the years, including, I think he, like, murdered a serial date rapist at one point, and uh, obviously got away with it. It, I mean, it, it makes you want to look away at times, but that's the beauty of Orrin Movement's movies. He makes these, like, really difficult movies to watch. This is his follow-up to The Messenger, and uh, it's one of the most disturbing cop movies I've seen, but it's a, it's kind of an essential one, too. It, it, it goes about in this, like, really slow documentary style, and uh, but it but it draws you in at the same time, and I, it makes you kind of question things. I, I, I love Rampart. I, I don't know that there were that many fans of it, but I'm, I'm putting that at number four as my dirty cop movie. Never seen it. I know Ebert liked it, but wanted to check it out. I haven't seen it, but I I did like The Messenger, so I'm I'm assuming. I mean, Woody Harrelson, um, and yeah, Dirty Cop movie definitely deserves to be on the list for sure. Okay, hey, it's my turn. Number three on my list is um is my entry from the '80s. Uh, it is the greatest action movie ever made. Some would argue the greatest Christmas movie ever made. It is the attack on Nakatomi Tower and one John McClane and his rescue of it. It's Die Hard. Um, it had to be on my list. It had to be. Uh, and it, it arrives here at number three. Uh, Bruce Willis makes his career. Uh, he's still... Uh, living off of the the legend of John McClane and many of the film roles he he chooses now, uh, and it's amazing. It, it it's it's got everything you want in a great action movie. Uh, you've got the the one man uh, hero who's trying to save the day. You've got an amazing villain in Hans Gruber. Uh, you have the sidekick as Sergeant Al Powell, Reginald Vell Johnson, which pretty much started Family Matters. I mean, his role in this is basically Carl Winslow. Um, which if I could have chosen a, a TV show, I think Family Matters definitely would have been in contention for that. Um, uh, you've you've got one of the the uh, greatest douchebags in uh, in all of film in uh, the reporter, and uh, I think all of us were were with uh, were with Holly Gennaro when she uh, when she punched the guy. Um, this is a it's 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 a classic. Um, now, Die Hard's two and three are pretty good. Everything past that, not so much. I never actually saw a good day to Die Hard. Live for your Die Hard isn't horrible, but it's kind of sad that it's only PG thirteen. But Die Hard is a classic. It's like I said, the greatest action movie of all time. Um, it kind of created the action movie genre. If you want more, we did deep dive this at one point. I think didn't we? Didn't we deep dive Die Hard? I feel like we did. We recast no? it. No. We recast it. Okay, we need to deep dive Die Hard at some point. Agreed. But, um, and you yeah. had Ellis on your douchebag list when we did the top Oh, five Ellis movies. too. Ellis is a douchebag too. No, I, I, I guess the reporter, I when I look at him, I, I think like Rat Fink. Like along with him and um and what's his name from Silence of the Lambs. 
uh, uh, the the Doctor Chilton, like those two are like the ultimate like rat finks. I don't know why that's the term I I, I use for them, but it is. But is John and, McClane really a good cop, though? I mean, I don't I don't think they're showing Die Hard at the police academy. Okay, let's just put it that way. <laughs> Not yeah, really someone who's following uh, procedure. I didn't include this because I—I I mean, he is a cop, but I don't think it's a cop movie. He's not really—he's not really acting as a cop. He's—he's he's kind of just saving the day as an action hero. He's totally acting as a cop. I mean, it's like—it's like his duty to do all this. And 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 it 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 glorifies the importance of cops because the FBI guys are obviously not very, competent. not very uh, competent. Yeah. Oh. Gosh, I think we're gonna need some more FBI guys. Um, yeah, and and I mean Alan Rickman in his his film debut as Hans Gruber, it's just, it's just great. Okay, so Die Hard number three, Zach, to you. All right, my number three is uh, it, one of many cop movies with Al Pacino. You could choose a lot of different cop movies. He's pretty much good in all of them, I, except for Cruising. Cruising's terrible, but the rest of them are all pretty worth checking out. The one that I'm going to go with is the one that selfishly I like the best. It's also my favorite Christopher Nolan movie. It is Insomnia from 2002. And I've actually never seen the original Insomnia, um, and I'm sure it's a really good movie, and maybe I don't want to see it because just have how much I like this movie, and I feel like it's a pretty faithful uh, remake of the of the Scandinavian film from the late 90s. Um, but this tells the story of Al Pacino, his name in the movie is Will Dormer, and he is a detective, a big city detective from Los Angeles, who's flown up to the small town of Nightmute, Alaska, to solve the uh, disappearance and murder of a 17-year-old girl kind of like one false move he's sort of flown into this small town where Hillary Swank is this kind of police trainee and she really looks up to him um, in part because uh, there's this assumption that the local authorities are so incompetent at solving the crime and actually they really are this is one of those rare cop movies where it's not so much about who did it we know that Robin Williams is the murderer in this movie this is again one of those rare Robin Williams performances where he is dark and ominous and not funny at all he's brilliant just kind of shows how dynamic and what a range he really had as an actor um, this movie is not so much about, though, uh, who did it, it's about why, and even moreover, it's about the relationship between the Robin Williams character and the Al Pacino character, because, of course, something happens in the movie where they have to begin relying on each other to keep each other's secrets, and uh, the dynamic between them is brilliant. Um, there are just the, the exchanges that they have in this movie. There's an exchange that they have on a steamboat that is just uh, phenomenal. They call each other in the middle of the night because, the ti- as the title infers, the sun never sets, and maybe it's a metaphor for Detective Dormer's soul. Who knows? Um, this is Christopher Nolan's best movie, in part because it's not a mind-twist movie so much. At least, it's a mind-twist movie in the sense that it's all internalized about the, the what this character has to navigate. Um, it's not, you know, uh, a, a dream dreamscape like Inception or Tenant or anything like that. Um, and as such, it's Christopher Nolan's best movie, and I think it's one of the best cop movies uh, ever made. It's awesome, awesome movie, so check it out. Holds up really well, even 20 years later. So I have a complicated uh, relationship with this movie. I, I've seen it, um, but I was in a situation where I didn't really pay that close attention to it. So if you ask me if I've seen it, I could, I would probably say yes. But I haven't given it a rating because I actually need to watch it. Like it was so on in a room it. I was in. Yeah, I haven't really seen it. 
This also so, has um, some great Pacino freakout moments too. Like, where is she, Finch? And then he, he goes through like the backpack and is like, we're gonna plant the backpack. Yeah, we're gonna do that. And then he, it's, it's some great Pacino scene chewing in this movie amid a good story. So it's not just all that. Um, but yeah. come on, Terry. Yeah, it's a great I, movie. Check yeah, it out. I need to watch it. I, I, I remember enough about it to know that this is by far Christopher Nolan's most grounded movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that, that has me intrigued more than more than anything so i need to watch it all right todd number three uh so my entry of a detective movie is uh, 1991's david mamet movie homicide Mm. which stars joe montagna who plays a jewish homicide detective who is assigned to investigate the murder of an old jewish woman uh, which leads him to, like, fall in with a Zionist group, and he makes some discoveries that sort of connect to an older case. Um, it has the feel of a great detective movie, but it's also, like, sort of spiritual and meditative at the same time. Uh, William H. Macy plays his partner. Ving Rhames is also in there. I I watched this movie for the first time in college for a, a class, and um, I've seen it a couple times since. It kind of is like... Dr. Duchin. Dr. Duchin, exactly. Uh, it, uh... I don't know. It, I, it's crept in my top 100 movies of all time. I, it, it's a cop movie, but it isn't just a cop movie. Uh, I also think it's Mammoth as his like least indulgent uh, dialogue here. Uh, he's after something different, but it's just as de- uh, as satisfying as uh, a detective movie. And it may not be the absolute best movie in the genre, but I'll take any opportunity to mention it because, I mean, I feel like it's criminally underseen and kind of a little masterpiece. Haven't seen it. Yeah, I saw it. I didn't get into it as much as you did. I don't know if we've ever even talked about this movie. Um, I feel like this movie was a little muddled in how it tried to balance the depiction of cops and this kind of anti-Zionist movement that it depicts and the anti-Semitism in the movie. However, I haven't seen it in about five or six years. I'd be really willing to rewatch it. I remember liking more of it than I didn't like. It just, I, to me, I was really anticipating seeing it, and it didn't quite live up to, um, like, uh, some of Mammoth's other work. Yeah, it's been quite a while since I've watched it, too. But, I mean, I guess I would probably need to revisit it to have an argument about it, I guess. All right. Time to move on to number two. And my number two is my entry from the 2000s. Uh, it's one that of all the ones on my list has the most chance of being Merlot. Um, and that is The Departed. Uh, wow, nobody else has it on their list. I thought this was like I, the obvious. I don't we need really... to talk about it. But yeah, I don't, it, okay. it, it I don't needs to be discussed. It, I didn't consider it a comedy. I, I consider that me a mo- neither. it's a mafia movie. Oh, me, come me, on. Me like, neither. This, and... this, should have, this is your dirty cop movie, Todd. I know. I mean, I, pro- I probably should have, but I, I don't think cop movie. I, I don't think The Departed. I think, I think it's a mob movie. Well, we got to talk about it. So I'm going to talk about it. It's my number two. Uh, Martin Scorsese finally wins his Oscar. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio, Matt Damon, uh, Mark Wahlberg, Jack Nicholson, Martin Sheen, uh, Alec Baldwin. Um, this is this is like Leo at his best. It's Matt Damon at his best. It's Jack Nicholson doing his thing better than he had like in the last like 20 years of his career. Um it's it's just and Mark Wahlberg gets the Oscar nomination out of this as well, so we can say Oscar nominated Mark Wahlberg. Um, it is it's a classic. Like this is of all the movies, 
I remember seeing around this time, it is the one that you watched and knew right away. This is instant classic. Um, and it will continue to be that instant classic. And, uh, and the twists and turns that this movie has, it's been a while since I've seen it. I need to watch it again because it's totally worth it. Um, and, uh, I had, I had to put on the list and, uh, the main character, like the main, what, like three or four characters outside of Jack are all cops. So you can't say that this does not qualify. Wait, who's because the, the top two characters are, are cops. I mean, they, Leo, Damon, then, Wahlberg. Well, Farmiga is, I mean, she, she Farmiga's not. Well, yeah, I know she and I'm saying like. Wahlberg's in, like, he has, like, two scenes. Or three scenes. Whatever. So, yeah. Whatever, man. It, it's, I mean, yeah, they're cops. This, this is Dirty Cop. This is Undercover Cop. Wahlberg this also is... has two nominations. Because he was nominated for Best Picture for The Fighter. Oh, gosh. Acting nomination. Whatever. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to say, I omit. I, I didn't put it on for, for two reasons. One, I just thought it was almost too obvious. It's almost like Fargo. But also... Leo is not a cop. As Mark, as Mark, Dan, Mark Wahlberg says, you will never be a Massachusetts state cop. You will never be a trooper. And so, uh, yeah, he's not a cop in the movie. When does he ever become a cop? He he's dismissed. Says, he also says you're, we're the only two people in the world that know you're a cop. <laughs> so I, yeah. I think he, yeah. he officially is a cop. Like he's and in, I would he's say the there database. are co-leads. I thought Todd would get on my case on a technicality, so I just avoided it. And I would say there's co-leads in this movie, and they are... Leo and Matt Damon, and Matt yeah. Damon is a cop. I just don't, I, I think it's a mob movie. I don't think it's a cop movie, but I mean, it's obviously, it would probably be number one otherwise. You you can't say this doesn't qualify, dude. <laughs> hey, I, it, I'm saying... You had one list. rule. You had one rule. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I don't consider it a cop movie. That, that it comes back to that. But, Whatever, I mean, I knew it was gonna, I knew it was gonna be on the list anyway, so... It's good. We'll right. talk about as many movies as possible. Yeah, exactly. Zach, number two. All right, my number two movie is from 1996. Another movie that I think kind of has gotten lost a little bit to time. It doesn't really have any solid like Blu-ray release. I own a really old DVD copy of it. It's not streaming anywhere. Um, it's from a director who I think has largely been forgotten, but he made great movies in the 80s and 90s. That director is John Sayles, and the movie is Lone Star from 1996. Mm, an awesome movie starring Chris Cooper as a small-town sheriff whose father was also a sheriff. His father is played in flashbacks by a young Matthew McConaughey. And uh, at the beginning of this movie, there is a skeleton that is dug up and kind of like uh, the Rosebud scene in Citizen Kane. Um, you spend the rest of the movie trying to figure out who the skeleton parts belong to and why they kind of got there. Actually, maybe it's a little like First Cow in that respect. Um, the movie is set against a backdrop of racial disharmony in this Texas border town where Chris Cooper is the sheriff. There is hostility and antagonism between the Hispanic neighborhood and the black neighborhood and the white neighborhood. And so this sheriff, who does have his own prejudices, to be sure, has to try to um, negotiate all these different sides of the town. And it actually goes, for much of the movie, it's not even really about the murder mystery. It's more just about Chris Cooper's relationship with all these different characters. This is also a great cast. Um, Elizabeth Pena is in this movie. Um, a lot, Chris Christopherson, Tony Frank, Lifton James. A lot of these kind of smaller character actors who got work in some of um, 
John Sayles' other movies. John Sayles was a director, I say was, he doesn't do a whole lot of work anymore, but he was a director who was very much interested in the intersections of different uh, different groups, different fragments, different factions of American society interacting with each other. And I think this is his best film. It's a movie that is very pertinent to racial te- the racial tension we've been seeing in 2020 and beyond because it is also it's fundamentally about how we as a society have more in common than we do uh, differences. And that sounds really corny, but it's a message that I think gets really boldly expressed in this movie. It's a very hopeful movie, um, even if you don't uh, see it right away. It's kind of like the total inverse of Crash. Okay, Crash was hokey, cliched. This movie has a much more authentic depiction of um, tension and the role of uh, the police and police brutality, and also the legacy of fathers and sons. So I wish John Sayles made more movies. He's made, you know, he made Matewan and Sunshine State and a few others um he's always an interesting director with powerful stories to tell sort of like a a a cousin to robert altman with his big casts and kind of bucolic american settings but um this is one of the best films of the 90s and i think it's my number two or three in 1996 but it's been largely forgotten but it's a really awesome and powerful movie never seen it yeah it's a really good choice i've seen it once and I, i remember really liking it i do love john sales Yes, and shout out to Dr. Hill for, uh, you know, Dr. Durkic required whatever movie that was. But, Duchin. Uh, Duchin, excuse me. He was a big fan of Homicide. Dr. Hill was a big fan of Lone Star, and we watched that in uh, our Film 101 class. He was just a big fan of John Sayles. Yes, he was. He he, <laughs> he liked Matewan and several uh, several other, Eight Men Out, several other John Sayles movies. What was the one that I had to watch for him? Oh, I can't remember now. There was one I had to watch, but you haven't mentioned it yet. I'll look it up. Okay. All right. While I'm looking it up, Todd, what's your number two? I feel like it might be Merlot. My number two is my police corruption movie, and that is L.A. Confidential. Merlot. Okay. <laughs> oh, well, we know what's... Okay. Hmm. Wonder what Terry's number one is going to be. Yeah. Now I can't look it up, though, so go ahead and talk about it, because I go next with my number one, so go for it. All right, so this is the Curtis Hansen movie from 1997. It's a modern noir about three cops who are investigating a murder in L.A., in the 1950s, uh, there's the clean-cut cop, there's the celebrity cop, and the brutal cop, and uh, they sort of join forces and investigate the criminal underworld of L.A., and they're left seeing just how deep the corruption in the police leadership can actually be. Uh, the cast is unbelievable. It's Russell Crowe, Guy Pierce, and Kevin Spacey in the leads. Uh, the tone of the movie is dark and uh, sexy. It's like a 1940s noir style, and it's got a bunch of twists and turns. Uh... You're never going to really see him coming unless you've seen it before, I guess. Uh, it, but it's been quite a while since I actually watched the movie, but it's the first movie that comes to mind when I think of police corruption, and that is uh, its own uh, category without going into, like, internal affairs, which I think is a completely different list. Like, there is a whole slew of internal affairs movies I could have gone with, but I, I decided to say that that's not even really police. Uh, so, But LA Confidential is a great movie, and we never really talk about it. That's my number two. I agree. I agree, we don't talk about this movie. And by the way, I looked it up. The John Sayles movie I had to watch for Dr. Hill was Men With Guns. Ah. Uh. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. So, uh, LA Confidential is number one on my list. And, uh, and yeah. As I was looking at it, yeah, I have it rated higher than The Departed. At one point, I put together a top ten of the 90s, and I made my top ten of the 90s. Um, and, it, I mean, it's... It's everything you want in a movie i mean you've got the star power you've got the twists and turns you've got um this this look at at 
the police force, but you've got these these main characters that are all over the all over the map. You've got you've got Guy Pierce who's trying to run the straight and narrow in a corrupt um, in a corrupt uh, police force. You've got you've got Russell Crowe who uh, has been told his whole life he's one thing and he's trying to become something else. You've got Kevin Spacey who's living the life of a Hollywood cop, but yet trying to find a way to be considered legit. Um, you've got James Cromwell who is the police chief and and of this corrupt station and there's a reason he's the one uh and then you've got all the all the ancillary pieces that are that are living in this world and i mean even down to like simon baker being in this movie i mean it is it it's such a great movie and it along with todd it's been a while since i've seen it but um there's something about like those those mid nineties mid mid nineties to like early two thousands that is just my era of movies and this is like like the the perfect movie for me I love this movie and I love everything about it so it had to be number one on my list once I thought of it Zach what are your thoughts on LA Confidential uh, I haven't seen it in a while I'd love to do a deep dive of it um, I'm not yeah. a huge fan of it if memory serves although it's again disingenuous for me to say I, I need to rewatch it I the, the, here's the problem with it okay so we showed it to a, a bunch of freshmen here at the, at the campus at KU in the film 101 class thinking oh my gosh this is such a stylish genre movie this is the representation of film noir or whatever and they really tore it apart and they actually laughed at the last scene in the movie and I kind of thought, you know what, um, they kind of have a point. I remember Russell Crowe's acting being on the heavier side in this movie. Uh, and I think I re- I thought that the, the, the formula of the genre was was churning. As a genre piece, it's good. But I just remember not really getting any, any deeper into the movie than I would something like The Big Sleep, which had an incoherent plot, but was great in terms of style. So maybe that part was missing for me. But I'd love to I'd love to look at this movie again. But it's never it's never been as as high for me as it is for both of you. I feel like the nice Thanks. guys wouldn't exist without this movie. I feel, I feel like it takes a lot from it. And, well, next year is 25 years for LA Confidential. Well, there we go. We'll, maybe we'll deep dive it next On our year. website, Zach gives it three stars, and Terry and me and Adam all give it four stars, and it's on Adam's top 100. It's my number one of the of, of 97, isn't it? Yeah. Adam's number two of 97, my number seven. Yeah. On, my, on the top ten of the 90s I put together, it's above Fargo, so it would have made this list over Fargo. It is, on my 97 list, it is my number... Uh, 27. Speed 2 is beneath it. Well, that's saying something. <laughs> it's a little better than Speed 2. I'll give you that. Well, speaking of the Speed franchise, Zach, what's your number one? It's not Speed. Oh. I really <laughs> wanted to go with it, but again, I was I got so like paranoid about these rules. Like I thought Todd would get on me because Jack Traven is technically a SWAT team member. I don't know. And we've talked about Speed enough. Um, I went with a, a movie where you cannot argue that the protagonist is a police officer and it is very much about the cop uh, mentality and the trauma of being a cop. And that's a movie that I, it's a movie that I know T- Todd and I have talked about before. I believe it's Jack Nicholson's best performance in a movie. And it is from 2000, The Pledge, directed by Sean Penn. Boy, why, why doesn't Sean Penn direct more movies? I mean, everything, everything he's directed in the last few years. 
Okay, well, I haven't. Seen, I guess I haven't seen the recent ones, but this one, The Indian Runner and uh, Into the Wild, were all great movies. But this is his best film, and it tells the story of Detective Jerry Black, who has just retired. I guess we've, that's been a sort of recurring theme on this list: retired cops who uh, get wanderlust and can't keep their mind out of cases that are pending. And so, uh, the best he can, Jerry Black uh, tries to solve uh, the murder of this young girl. They think they have the culprit, played by an un- unbelievable five-minute performance by Benicio Del Toro. By the way, if we ever do a power ranking of like the top one-scene performances, Benicio Del Toro in this movie is off the charts. But anyway, they think they've solved the case, and uh, the parents of the little girl make Jack Nicholson make a pledge that he will find the killer. And so months later, he's, you know, fishing at the lake in Nevada, and he just is unsatisfied with the notion that Benicio Del Toro was the killer. And so he develops basically this strange concoction to... Um, try to lure the killer uh, back so he can catch him. And he does that by using um, the daughter of a character played by Robin Wright Penn. And uh, the movie uses fishing as this analogy, which is just brilliant. Um, and it also looks... What's so great about the movie is that he's an unreliable protagonist. We In the opening scenes, he has so much authority and control over the situation. You can tell he's a great cop. But as the movie goes along, you start seeing that okay, is he really, like, onto something because he's, you know, Columbo, or is he, like, losing his marbles a little bit? The Aaron Eckhart character, who's also in the police force, absolutely thinks this guy has lost any sort of, um, you know, um, mentality for being a cop. Uh, just an incredible movie. Talk about great perfor- great one-scene performances. Not just Mickey Rourke, but also um, Helen Mirren is in this movie. Uh, let's see, who else? Uh, Mickey, uh, Mickey Rourke is in this movie. Uh, Patricia Clarkson. So many great one-scene performances. Uh, Vanessa Red grave uh awesome movie awesome performances awesome everything and uh i love it it's one of my favorite movies of the 2000s criminally underrated movie came out in like march of 001 no one saw it and got kind of forgotten yeah sean penn at the time he was making he was direct his directing movies that i feel like he thought that he probably would want to be in at some point like he, he made some great cop movie, or he was in great cop movies like uh, State of Grace and Colors. Like he, he has some good good ones, so he obviously wanted to explore that at some point. And obviously, that would have been a, a later performance from if he was in this one. But yeah, but yeah, the pledge is a great choice. I, I actually didn't even think of it, but yeah, I approve. It's been a while since I've seen it, and I think I only saw it because you forced me to watch it in college, Zach. Um, so I liked right. it when I watched <laughs> at two a.m. or something. So, yeah, yeah, probably. something like that. Yeah. Alright, Todd, number one. Okay, my number one is my entry as a, an undercover cop movie, and that is from 2002, the Joe Carnahan movie Narc, yeah, which is about ah. a narcotics officer who is brought into the fold to investigate the murder of another narc. Uh, Jason Patrick is the main character, and he joins forces with Ray Liotta, who gives one of the best, most intense performances of the 2000s. Um, and they dive into the case, they strong arm, strong arm subjects, um, and witnesses turn up dead, and uh, it just moves at like this really nervous and furious pace. Uh, Carnahan is kind of fascinated with these kind of movies, like he wrote Pride and Glory, which is another pretty underrated cop movie. Um, but this is like sort of cop movie masterpiece, like it's brutal, it's unpredictable, it feels like what it's like to be a cop, and plus the undercover part makes it even more fascinating, and, and the stakes get just, like, super high in this movie. Uh, it's not the best of that genre, necessarily, because that's obviously Serpico, but, uh, 
This is this is like the first one that comes to mind when I think of the 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 subgenre of undercover cop movies, and the ending scenes are just like chilling, and uh, when everything is unveiled, it's a uh, it's a great movie. So my number one is Narc. I I remember we watched that at the same time, and you loved it a lot more than I did, but I don't really remember much about it. I gave it two and a half stars when I watched it. That's all I remember. That is disappointing. You haven't I, seen I it, Zach? Really... I've not seen it, no. I remember when it came out, but I've never had a chance to check it out. All right. Well, let's go through some honorable mentions here. Um, so uh, my honorable mentions, I've got five here that just missed my list. First off, the one that uh, at the last minute I pulled off my list, I put Zootopia on, and instead um, what I had on there was three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. It, it's like second and third leads were both played by cops or were both cops and so i thought that that might have qualified it but um your your qualifications got me nervous so oh yeah well, so, so they're supporting it. characters they are they are but and they're oscar nominated supporting characters but they're supporting characters so i pulled it off the list um and then uh uh if you're going a uh, buddy cop nothing beats rush hour so uh i saw someone posted on um, some posted a question, I think it was on Facebook, of when you see, like, the New Line Cinema, um, like, intro, what film do you think of? And instantly I thought of Rush Hour. That was the first one I thought of, so. Um, of course, Police Academy. Uh, you, you gotta talk about Police Academy when you're talking about cop movies. Um, at, at the silly, goofy 80s series. Um, Seven was another one I thought of. Uh, and, uh, and then another one that probably doesn't qualify now that I think about it is the usual suspects, but um, that that I mean, anyways. So here here's here's what I think is interesting about your your qualifications, Otan. So seven qualifies because it is two police detectives chasing a serial killer. However, Silence of the Lambs does not qualify because it is an FBI agent chasing a serial killer. What's well, I... the difference between the two? I mean, I was, I don't know, I just wanted to make it a little bit more tight, but I mean, I didn't include I Seven either, because I, I, that, yeah, that's, I don't consider that a cop movie, that's, that's a, I mean, yeah, they're uh, yeah. detectives, but I mean, I don't know. It, yeah. I guess it's all about okay. how you look at it. We, we always do our own little spin on it, but I just wanted to make it somewhat specific so we could actually have real cop movies, at least try yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. All right, Zach, what are your honorable mentions? So I feel like there was this string of movies, like right around the time NARC came out, like 02 to 04, where there were some really solid cop movies. So I had um, Man on Fire, City by the Sea, SWAT, um, Hollywood Homicide, and I do have to say it, Starsky and Hutch, solid cop movie right there. I'm amazed that Todd didn't mention Thunder Road. That's why I actually left it off my list. I was just going to defer it to Todd. Normal Life, underrated Luke Perry, Ashley Judd movie from the 90s. Very good cop movie. Uh, the Mighty Quinn with Denzel. I mean, we could make a whole Denzel cop movie list, but that was my favorite. Copycat <laughs> with Sigourney Weaver and, Hel and Holly Hunter. Red Riding 1983. Prince of the City with Treat Williams. Um, and then, of course, yes, yeah, yeah, Speed and Speed 2 Cruise Control. Um, Jason Patrick as Alex is a, a, is a cop in that movie, so that technically qualifies. And then, of course, I, I would put In the Heat of the Night as my number one. I haven't seen it in a while. It's one of those movies where when I first saw it as a teenager, I didn't like it as much. I thought it was kind of corny. 
seeing it in the last few years, I really love it though. And it is a great pick. Um, I would want to watch it again though to make sure that it would be my number one, but it's probably the most influential and important cop movie along with the French Connection. Yeah, French Connection made my made my long list. It didn't quite make the honorable mentions, but yeah. Todd. Uh, so I have uh, the movies that I assigned to you, uh, you guys. I, I left those <laughs> off. Uh, we'll talk about them in a little bit. I yeah. also have uh, I, I have Pride and Glory and Serpico, which I just mentioned. Uh, Q&A is a really good one with Nick Nolte back in the 80s. Uh, Rush is a really good like really disturbing cop movie with like Jennifer Jason Lee. Uh, Bad Lieutenant and Bad Lieutenant yeah. Court of Call New Orleans are both great. Uh, the French Connection, Copland, that stupid iguana man. <laughs> <laughs> Copland, uh, Internal Affairs, Dirty Harry, both versions of Assault on Precinct Thirteen, Thunder Road, uh, Twenty One and Twenty Two Jump Street, Police Academies One through Six, and my two guiltiest of guilty pleasures, which I would love to deep dive at some point: National Security and Showtime, <laughs> which yes. I have seen both probably at least twenty five times. Oh man. I feel like Showtime. National Security is a, is a movie that takes on a whole new light in our current culture. But I reviewed Showtime for my high school newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> if we deep dive it, I'd have to dig that up somewhere. Yes. From uh, the archives. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. Okay. It is now time for us to try and guess Adam Daly's list. Uh, again, catch him on this podcast feed with his Daily Notes episodes. Uh, all right. I'm going first. All right, so my number, or number five, uh, Die Hard. Number four, Training Day. Number three, The Other Guys. Uh, number two, I said The Dark Knight because Commissioner Gordon, you could say, is kind of like the main character and he's police. So I, maybe, depending on how you interpret main character as protagonist. You should have gone with like some animated Batman then. Yeah, I know. And number one, The Departed. Zach, what's your what's your uh, what's your guess here? Okay, so uh, my number five was Twenty One Jump Street. Number four is End of Watch. Number three is The Town. Number two is Seven, and number one is The Departed. The Town, Dad. I guess uh, I have number five, Training Day. Number four, Lethal Weapon. Number three, Seven. Number two, Twenty One or Twenty Two Jump Street, and number one, The Departed. De- definitely some Merlots on on our lists. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Here, here's his list. Honorable mentions. He has uh, Let's Be Cops. Nice. Uh, Rush Hour. Lethal Weapon 2. I don't know what, what where the rest of them are, but Lethal Weapon 2. Uh, one that none of us mentioned, but we needed to. Kindergarten Cop. Oh, yeah. Nice. That, Good call. Like, why didn't we mention that? That's a great call. Uh, the Fugitive and Seven. All right. His list. Number five, End of Watch. Number four, Minority Report, which I um, thought about going with, but I guess he it's it's okay. borderline whether they're I don't know. I thought it was too it qualifies. borderline, and I I felt Todd was going to yell at me if I picked it, so I didn't. Um, number three, Heat. Uh, number two, Die Hard, and number one, The Departed. I only had one. I got two. I had two, and his number one. I had his number one, and I, I had, had his number, number two. But I had his number two at number five. Okay. Number, yeah, number five. So what did uh, what was the other one you had, Zach? Uh, end of watch. So you had you it had it at four. Four and it was five. 
And I had I had his number two, but I had it at five. So does Zach win because he had it, the, the second close. one closer? <laughs> I don't know. Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna say I win, but <laughs> I mean, did that's, you? Did that's we... pretty. I don't know. I'd, I can see the argument either way. I didn't have any honorable mentions. Did you have any of his honorable mentions? 21 Jump Street, didn't he say uh, that? He didn't mention that at all. Oh, okay. Which is interesting. Seven? I had yeah, that as seven number two. Yeah, seven was in his honorable mention. Yeah, I had that as number two. Then I, I think that seals it. I think Zach wins. All right. All right. So give him a point. I was so close. So close. That is Zach's uh, 19th point. And uh, Terry is at 16. And I am at 25 and a half. I'm falling behind. All right. Well, that's that. Moving on. It's trivia time. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Boyd is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. And before we get to our trivia game, we got to report on the movies we had to watch. We're going to Zach first. Zach, what'd you have to watch? So I had to watch Training Day, which, I, shockingly, I have not seen. Yeah, what's I, up with that, man? I will say that I've I had tried to watch it a couple times, but as is won't for me, I did doze off or something. I don't know. But I would say it's been at least since 2010 that I've tried to watch it. So it felt pretty fresh this time. Um, you know, it's a movie that won Denzel as Oscars, so it's only fair that um, I watch it because I lo- we love A Beautiful Mind. We talked about the Oscar injustice not giving Russell Crowe the Oscar. I feel like it was reversed. I feel like Denzel should have won an Oscar for Remember the Titans instead of Russell Crowe in 2000, and Russell Crowe should have won in 2001, but whatever. Um, Training Day is, is an interesting movie, though. I, I liked it quite a bit. Um, I, and, uh, the thing that I liked most about it is it had, it was a movie that had the audacity to be, um, a character study, at least in the first hour, about the two different philosophies of the two main characters, the Denzel Washington and Ethan Hawke characters. And the best that the, the, there's a couple scenes that really stood out. I love every scene where they're in Denzel Washington's car talking about their different approaches to dealing with criminals, but also what their role is as cops and as, um, you know, drug, uh, enforcing detectives or whatever they're trying to do, like undercover detectives. I mean, I, it's rare to find a cop movie where they actually kind of talk about what their job is and what it isn't and I really like that if this had been more of like a My Dinner with Andre style movie maybe a better example a heat coffee scene movie where they're just talking about what their jobs are and aren't I would have loved that but of course this is not we don't live in that world sadly um the other scene that I thought was a standout was when they go into um you know, we talked about great five-minute performances. There are some good five-minute performances in this movie. The best one comes from Macy Gray, who I did not realize was was that good of, of an actor. But there's a scene where they go into her house with a fake um, search warrant. She is amazing in that scene. That should have been like a Beatrice Strait Oscar nomination type. She had the long nails. She was phenomenal in that scene. Um, like I said, first hour of this movie is very good. A tete-a-tete of two characters. When it turns into the shootout with the Denzel Washington dealing with the Russian mob, give me a break. Come on, that's ridiculous. Um, but it was an entertaining movie up to that point, and it's a solid three-star movie. And Denzel gave a great acceptance speech at the Oscars. One of my favorite things that he said was, um, I told my kids if I won, we were going to go home and celebrate, and if I lost, we were going to go home and celebrate, and we're going home and celebrating. I, I, I always remember that line. It's a great acceptance speech, so regardless of if I feel like it was deserving over Russell Crowe or not, uh, it was a great moment. And he's a great actor. 
Well, I'm glad yeah. you liked it. I, I was prepared for you to actually hate it, but uh, so that's refreshing. I, I think Ethan Hawke is equally amazing as Denzel in the movie. I think I think it's Ethan Hawke's second best he... performance. I think his two best performances were in 2001, and uh, I think he should have been nominated for best actor, not supporting actor. Yeah, I that's I was gonna say the same thing. He almost has more screen time than Denzel does in the movie. But... Yeah, he's a really he's a really complicated character. I I, mm-hmm. I, I yeah, and I love their back and forth. I love. I mean, it's one of the few times that uh, Eva Mendes doesn't ruin the movie she's in. Um, I, I like, Ouch! I <laughs> Dang! I don't know. Snoop Dogg, obviously, is great. Um, I, I, it's, yeah, it's a great movie. It's, a, I mean, th- there was a time when it was like a top 20 movie for me. But uh, it, it's, it's not nearly up that, that far now. But uh, I, I do love doing still. Yeah, it's a great one. It really is. It really is. I still think Russell Crowe should have won. But yeah. It's, it's a great movie. All right. Uh, well, I had to watch uh, another movie written by David Ayer, um, which I find funny that both our movies were written by the same guy. Yes. <laughs> and this one was also directed by David Ayer. It is a 2012 movie, End of Watch, starring uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Pena. Uh, and this is uh, another cop movie where uh, they are uh, they are partners uh, working the beat in like South Central LA, um, and it, it it's just a look at at their day to day and how just because they're working this kind of dangerous neighborhood, they get mixed up into some things that they don't really realize they're getting mixed up into. Just because they're trying to do their job, they're kind of thrill seekers at the same time, looking for the the big sexy uh, uh, cases, the big sexy calls that they need to go go investigate. Um, and, uh, they're, they're definitely kind of feeling this, this air of invincibility of, about them. But, uh, so much of this movie is just them sitting in their car talking to each other, uh, which is fascinating because these two characters are really, really interesting. Um, more than any other movie, I feel like this, uh, this movie, the camera is its own character in a lot of ways, like more than I've, I've ever seen in, in like any other movie. Um, as Jake Gyllenhaal is, is like saying that he's making a documentary, he's got a project that he's making for a, a class he's taking. And so he's constantly has a camera in his hands and they're, they're playing the camera. Sometimes they're explaining things because they've got a camera in their hands, uh, which really adds to it. Um, it. It's got some, some really great moments from the, the subtle moments of them just having a conversation with each other to, uh, to where the story ends up going and the dramatic ending um, kind of, I, I, the ending could have gone uh, a different way, and I, but um, it doesn't necessarily ruin the movie. I, 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 I love this. This is this was an intense thrill ride of a movie. Um, if I, I disqualify this from my list because I just watched it, and I knew I was going to be talking about it. If I had, if I hadn't, it would have been on my list. I'm. I'm making it a four-star movie, and it's cracking my top ten, which means it's making all four of our top ten lists in nice. 2012. Um, it was already in our top five, uh, and the only reason it wasn't higher is because I hadn't seen it yet. So it's barely cracking my top ten, but it is going to crack my top ten. Um, awesome movie. Really, really good movie. Um, and then you had you had some subtle performances in there. Uh, early performance from Anna Kendrick. You had David Harbour, who's now a big deal. Frank Grillo. Uh, it was always interesting to see in a movie um, back when, before he like jacked himself up for the MCU. Uh, and then you got like America Ferreira and Cody Horn in this movie who are 
partners that are kind of it's kind of interesting to see in there too but yeah uh todd told me he was assigning me this movie he goes but i, I don't know where you're gonna find it. i said oh it's on my movie shelf I, I it's a dvd i own that i haven't watched yet and it was like the, it was the next one like i have like an order of how i watch them it was the next one on my list that i was gonna get to anyway so it worked out well so loved it yeah that movie it's like the one cop movie that shows like the like the the best like the brotherhood of being a cop and like the way you feel for your partner and like those guys they live for that shit like they are like rocking out going down the highway just like after they're after they uh, you know they get a they, they just make a bust like they live for the the beat cop life and i i, I just i don't know i love that i i, I could have been that I, that was what i wanted to do when i was a kid so. <laughs> zach I, I it looked like you liked this movie too it's on your top 10 of 2012 yeah, I haven't seen it since I saw it in the theater, but uh, I remember really loving it. And um, yeah, very realistic. Um, it has refreshing in a way that I think it kind of reinvented the genre. It didn't feel like any other cop movie I'd ever seen at that point, but it had, you know, the same sort of compelling relationships that you know maybe Lethal Weapon type movies it had, but in just a really fresh way. And I remember thinking, David Ayer, man, he is an, a talent to watch until he got involved with Suicide Squad. By the way, are you guys watching the Justice League trailer freakout phenomenon on, on the internet today? Uh, my my I, goodness. I know, I know it's out there. I haven't bothered watching it. I mean, when the Snyder Cut comes out, I'll probably watch it, but I, I'm not going to go freak out over a trailer. Really. You don't want to make an internet video over it? An, a reaction video, Terry? No. It's not your thing? Not, okay. Not, not my thing. <laughs> more adam we'll let adam do do that kind of stuff yeah yeah okay all right well it is time for uh for trivia and uh todd you're hosting so tell us what we're doing uh so i have a couple categories uh the first one i think the cop movie king is samuel jackson i think he's played a cop in like 20 movies or something so but his heyday was 2000 to 2009 so we're just gonna do samuel jackson filmography trivia from 2000 to 2009 Wow, there, that that has to be like two thousand movies, right? <laughs> there are uh, let's see, uh, thirty-seven. <laughs> it's amazing; it's that low. <laughs> Almost four movies per year. Uh, and since Terry liked this movie more than Zach liked this movie, I will start with Terry. Lovely. Um, I'm gonna start with Snakes on a Plane. That is one. Uh, black black snake moan. That is correct. Which is also called snakes skanks on a chain. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that joke? That was really funny for about three, that, that, three that weeks. Was, that was, yeah, that was funny for, at one point. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> uh, uh. I'll go with um, Kill Bill Volume Two. Ooh. That is a great choice. That is correct. Rufus, he's the man. Did you say 2009 or 2010? 2009. Okay, there's a movie that's just on the edge of it, but I can't. I, I don't know if it counts or not. Um, we'll just go uh, Star Wars uh, Attack of the Clones. That is correct. Revenge of the Sith. Also correct. Shaft. Shaft is correct. Uh, the Man. <laughs> the Man. With Eugene Levy? Uh, okay, yeah, there it is. That is correct. Wow. That's impressive, Terry. Yeah, that was... Nicely done. 
Um, Formula 51. That is correct, and I have never heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what is... Yeah, okay. All right, 2000-2009, right? Yes. Iron Man. That is correct. Yeah. He had the tiny little cameo in the post-credits. Um... Wow, why am I blanking? I feel like there's so many, but I'm blanking. Uh, Mother and Child? That's correct. I knew that was the one you were thinking about. <laughs> that was the one I wasn't sure if it was 2010 or not. Oh, <laughs> uh, what? It's five okay. to five. I almost should make this our only category. We kind of are running long. <laughs> um, Inglorious Bastards. He's a narrator in that. Yeah, that's correct. Um, oh man, uh, there are I'm out. multiple I'm cop out. movies which have been mentioned on this podcast. <laughs> um, I'm out, I'm out, go for Terry, I'm okay. out. So Terry wins, I guess, 6-5, unless he comes up, comes up with more. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have any more. Alright, well, there was, uh, Lakeview Terrace, where he's obviously a cop. There was oh, St- yeah. Star Wars Clone Wars. Could have gone with that. Kept kept going Star Wars. Uh, Resurrecting the Champ, 1408. Triple uh, X and Triple X 2. Oh, Triple X. Coach yeah, Carter, okay. SWAT, which obviously we no, mentioned. No, we already mentioned. Uh, Zach's, one of his favorite movies, Changing Lanes. Ugh. <laughs> Un- unbreakable. And Terry's yeah. oh, like, too- maybe bottom five of all time, Twisted. <laughs> Remember that movie, Terry? I do. I actually haven't seen that movie. It's on oh, my really? shelf, though. Oh, yeah. maybe it's on You hated fine. it. Oh. It's apparently, up, yeah. he's in The Incredibles. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's Frozone. Yeah. I can't believe I said Formula 51, but not Changing Lanes. There's something wrong with me. <laughs> I don't I even know help. what the hell that movie is. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I just, yeah, I remember. I, I never saw it. Uh, it's supposed to be terrible. <laughs> so, so, Todd, did you decide that's our only category? Yeah, I mean, the other one Let's was... do it. You want to do the other category? You want oh, no, 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 no. Give it to Terry. I... Okay. Okay. All right. I don't I think you, you've won a lot of trivia, Terry, so. Well, and I, I almost won the... I win trivia more often than I win the, the uh, Power Rankings game, so. All right. I win. That that was a, that was fun. So uh, now it's time for Quote of the Day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. I gotta go first. Um, I have two quotes. I couldn't decide on which one I wanted to go with. Uh, they're from my top two um, cop movies. So first we have The Departed. Uh, this one comes from Dingham, played by uh, Mark Wahlberg, when he says, uh, "I'm the guy doing my job. You must be the other guy." That that I love that that quote. And then the other one is from LA Confidential. Which is the the tagline for the for the entire movie? Off the record, on the QT, and very hush hush, which I feel like describes this podcast a lot of the time. So please tell your friends about about almost sideways. So we're not on the QT and very hush hush. I, I want more people to be able to hear our our lovely banter. So, all right, Todd, you're next. Uh, so mine comes from, yeah, the guiltiest of guilty pleasure cop movies, National Security, which is a little exchange <laughs> between Steve Zahn and Martin Lawrence. Uh, Steve Zahn says, do you actually believe the crap that comes out of your mouth? 
And then Martin Lawrence res- responds with, I'm never really sure until I'm finished talking. And that absolutely <laughs> describes this podcast. <laughs> well played. Well played, Todd. Yeah. All right, Zach. So my line comes from Insomnia, and uh, it's spoken by Hilary Swank, but it's from the book that the, the Al Pacino character wrote, because he's such a great detective that he wrote a book about it. And the quote is, a good cop can't sleep because he's missing a piece of the puzzle, and a bad cop can't sleep because his conscience won't let him. Or because he's racist. But that, that was just my addendum to it. But uh, yes, great quote, and uh, great movie. I'm surprised. How, did, how come Heat didn't show up on any of our lists? Did Adam put that on his list? Yeah, it was on Adam's list. He had I, it number three. Surprised that wasn't higher. Yeah. More Pacino cop movies. I think we need one last Pacino cop movie before the end of the career. Righteous Kill is pretty awesome. I think you're the only one who thought that, but okay. I'm not even sure. Lot, like 88 minutes, too? 88, yeah, oh, 88 yeah. minutes. Uh, yeah. Anyways, with that, we're going to bring this podcast to a close. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, make sure you subscribe, rate, review all over the internet. And uh, we'll be back at you very soon with another episode. Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together. <laughs> <laughs>